Jean-Luc Godard, filmmaker, born 1930, Paris. His films include Breathless, The Little Soldier, The Outsiders, Alphaville, and most recently, Pierrot Le Fou. He came to Paris in his 20s to study ethnology at the Sorbonne University. In Paris, he fell in with a group of young film fanatics, including Claude Chabrol and Francois Truffaut, both of whom were to become famous in the so-called new wave of young French directors. Last Monday, September 13th, 2022, Jean-Luc Godard passed away at the age of 91 from assisted suicide. Jean-Luc Godard died with 131 directorial credits on IMDb, at least 28 feature films, and worked as a film critic during the 1950s, along with Francois Truffaut. Godard epitomized the French New Wave, which was a highly experimental, often low-budget and avant-garde film movement in the 1950s and 1960s, which attempted to break French cinema away from what Truffaut called the tradition of quality. It was also a movement of French film fanatics attempting to move the art form forward through relentless experimentation. Goudard and Truffaut hated that they saw French cinema as a carbon copy of materialistic and commercialized American cinema that Goudard believed served to export American culture and values around the world. So tonight, in honor of Jean-Luc Goudard, we are going to be looking at the 1963 film Contempt, starring Brigitte Bardot and Michelle Piccoli as a French married couple named Paul and Camille. This is the first film where Goudard worked with a million dollar budget and the first one where he cast internationally known stars. American actor Jack Palance plays an American film producer who hires Paul to work on the script for Homer's The Odyssey. That's wonderful for you and me, but you think the public is going to understand that? The producer is at loggerheads with legendary German expressionist director Fritz Lang, who Godard was a huge fan of and actually casts for this film. I don't know if you're able to understand it, Jerry. I certainly hope you can. It's a fight against the gods. It was also a cry of despair about Hollywood film and the inability of the American style of filmmaking to tell realistic stories. J'aime beaucoup le cinémascope. Ce n'est pas fait pour des hommes. C'est fait pour les serpents, pour les enterrements. Dard uses the debate over the true meaning and scope of Fritz Lang's Odyssey to tell the story of Paul and Camille's marriage falling apart 
as Camille begins to suspect that Paul is trying to leverage her to get closer to the American film producer. The dissolution of their marriage over Paul's use of Camille as a form of currency is compared to the materialistic and commercial nature of Hollywood filmmaking itself. Anyway, before I introduce the panel, let me say, please like this video and subscribe to the Movie Night Extravaganza YouTube channel. Also, we are now monetized, so if you have any pressing questions during this live show, send us a super chat. We are absolutely obligated by international law, human rights law, to answer it. We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash movie night extra. All of our after parties are available on there forever. Okay, let me introduce the panel. Jandrew World, illustrator, book cover artist, comic designer, and artist for Give Them an Argument, co-host of Movie Night Extravaganza, and Bad Takes. Christina Oaks, she has recently rebranded to Cosmopolitics, twitch.tv slash Cosmopolitics, or on Patreon, or find her on all the social media uh, websites, and she streams about four times a week. Karthik Perushadaman. Alien Encounters.substack.com and he co-hosts Revolutionary Tracks with Left Flank Vets. JG Michael, host of Parallax Views. I, of course, am your long-suffering host, Forrest Miller. I forgot to introduce myself earlier. Without further ado, let's get started. That was good. That was good. I, I like uh, I like how you uh Bustled through Karthik's name. <laughs> and Karthik's going to be on at nine, I guess. He doesn't get out of work just yet. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So he missed, he missed <laughs> you know, you being like, Karthik. <laughs> Karthik Peru Sutherman. <laughs> you know, fam the famous Karthik Peru Sutherman. Um, yeah, <laughs> so uh, I think I did a good job with that. Um, yeah, no, no, especially especially you had Karthik's name in there. And I and, uh, love the dude, but his last name is a mouthful. It definitely is. But uh yeah, so John Luke Goddard. Let's let's hear some takes. What do you guys think of this movie? Best captain of the enterprise. Stop. No. <laughs> Great Bad. stuff. Yeah, no, it was it's actually kind of fun because uh, you know, like I, I really only know Jack Palance from like his, his uh late period where he was doing um Batman and, and Tango and Cash and City Slickers, and of course City Slickers 2, Legend of Curry's Curly's Gold. And, um, you know, where, where like he was kind of a punchline, even though like he's like uh, this, this old, old man still doing all those pushups, um, which is like kind of what he's known for. City Slickers. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's the first time he really works with uh, internationally known stars. And also he has an American producer producing this that like Jack Palance's character is based on. Um, that he doesn't really get along with throughout this production. He finds he finds Americans just like uncouth and kind of uh, um, too sexual about things. So the fact that he's parodying that in an actual movie where that's like one of the themes of the movie is pretty funny. This is also uh, one of his bigger budgeted works from this time period, right? It's his biggest budgeted um, yeah. work. I think it's the first time he worked with a million dollar budget uh, in his, his in his entire career. It's absolutely beautiful too to look at because the uh, cinematography is just uh, gorgeous throughout the the whole piece. Um, uh, it still has that very sixties, you know, 
blue and brown color scheme that like everything from the 60s seems to have but but um uh, just just nicely shot though you know um yeah so let's so let's start with this i have a video of them talking about how hard it actually was to get the colors um like the actual uh film stock for the colors because i guess they filmed it in italy and italy has a monopoly and they traded up the european market between kodak and an italian company and a an english company or something so i have a video that i got for you to actually go through the color scheme nice Quand on regarde le mépris, je veux dire, on se rend compte que la couleur est une chose très importante puisque finalement, euh, euh, le film est éclatant de couleurs et avec en plus une, la musique de, de la rue qui est absolument extraordinaire. Et le grand truc tient, la, 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 la grande partie du film tient là-dessus. Et, et alors, il y a une chose assez curieuse parce que quand on a commencé à tourner, euh, donc ça devait être tourné en Technicolor, mais euh, naturellement avec des euh, prises de vue faites en Ishman. Au bout de quatre ou cinq jours, on va donc euh, au laboratoire Technicolor à, à Rome pour voir les tirages. Et il y avait eu quelques temps avant euh, des accords avec les fabricants de pellicules et j'étais en fait partagé le marché pour pas euh, tous euh, trop en concurrence. Et, bon, et l'Italie avait obtenu comme marché de, de faire toute la positive euh, fabriquée par Ferrania. Alors qu'avant, il y avait la concurrence de Kodak et de Gebert et de Dacra. Bon. Et alors donc, on va voir les premiers rushs et, et on était complètement catastrophés parce qu'il y a Jean-Luc qui est un monsieur qui adore les couleurs vives et les couleurs éclatantes, etc. Euh, on s'est retrouvé avec une, un, des, des prises de vue assez ternes où il n'y avait pas de jaune qui, qui claquait, pas, pratiquement pas de rouge. C'était une image qui était très, très brune dans l'ensemble. Les verts étaient jamais... Euh, très brillant, la, la mer était pas vraiment bleue, euh, elle était complètement effondrée. Et les gens de Technicolor nous ont dit, mais non, vous inquiétez pas, ça vient du fait qu'on a tiré ça sur la Ferrania. Alors du coup, ils ont envoyé un type dans la nuit à Paris euh, chercher de la pellicule chez Colac, et le lendemain, ils nous ont montré euh, les mêmes tirages, tirés sur la pellicule Colac, et puis en même temps, ils nous avaient fait Euh, le plaisir de nous faire deux, deux prises tirées en Technicolor. Bon, d'un seul coup, on s'est retrouvé avec notre, nos tirages très éclatants. Et bon, on a été rassurés. On s'est dit, bon, bah, d'accord, à partir de maintenant, il n'y a pas besoin de s'inquiéter. Donc, à partir du moment où on est dans les, dans les normes et qu'on a les, les lumières de tirage correctes, euh, on continue comme ça. Alors, donc, le film, dans ça, c'était tout au début. Euh, durant la première semaine. Alors, donc, les 15 semaines de tournage du film, on fait tous les tournages et on va voir les, les roches quand on pouvait suivre, suivre les endroits. Bon, et tout ça, on fait rien. Et puis, sur, sur ce, les Américains trouvent que le film n'est pas suffisamment intéressant pour être tiré en Technicolor. Le Technicolor, à l'époque, il faut dire qu'il fallait tirer au moins 100 copies. Bon, maintenant, je ne sais plus un problème, mais mais c'est des choses qu'on faisait pas du tout hein. à l'époque on tirait pas jamais autant de copies que ça donc euh, ils décident de tirer moins de 100 copies donc il fallait mieux le tirer normalement et de ce coup-là on fait revenir la, la négatif à Paris pour pas avoir à venir à chaque fois à Rome pour discuter des trucs et puis on arrive à ce qu'on appelle la copie zéro et la copie zéro a été tirée en en Kodak et d'un seul coup clac tout ce qu'on avait vu en lumière très atténuée était éclatant de couleurs et on a trouvé ça absolument immonde, affreux 
Et on a mis un bout de temps à se, à se faire. À se, ça veut dire qu'on s'était complètement habitué à cette image qui était, qui nous plaisait pas du tout au début. Et on s'était habitué, on avait trouvé ça bien finalement. Et voilà, finalement, on, on, on s'est habitué très bien euh, au, à l'image très colorée. Nice. Yeah. I, I mean, just, just, uh, my experience with photography, a lot of it, uh, like this, the, the grain of the film and like all this, uh, the, the, the type of, you know, stock of film, what you're putting the, uh, the, the photos on all of that stuff affects the, the, the whole picture. So it, it's, uh, it's actually kind of interesting to hear them going through this creative process of, of, uh, you know, running through different stocks of film. Um, and if you're listening to this and don't speak French. That's basically what it was running through. It was like, oh, we tried this. Yeah, so, so there's two companies. Uh, Ferrania, I guess, is the Italian one that had a monopoly in Italy of uh, film stock. And then Kodak. Finally, your monopoly. Italian accent makes sense. But <laughs> Ferrania. Um, so they had a, a monopoly in Italy. And so they had to go back and forth. This is what he's saying to France to get actual Kodak, Kodak film stock. And he talks about in a different clip that they couldn't get a Technicolor camera. They had to get like a Fran, a Fran color. I, I'll, I'll, I'll play the clip later and actually see what the camera. But it's like a, it's the French, it's like the French manufactured version of a Technicolor camera because uh, Technicolor wouldn't sell them a camera for whatever reason. Let them actually tour the whole studio and look at the process, but wouldn't let them actually get the camera to um, shoot this. So you know they had to travel between the two. And, and this is on the American's dime, right? Like this is on the dime of of people who already are kind of upset about this movie because they don't think it's sexual enough. And this is before they added that first scene where, you know, he's like, oh, I like your legs. And she's like, do you like my thighs? And he's like, yeah, I like your thighs. I like the wing meat. I like the, you know, I like the, the I like, I like the wings. I like the thighs. I like the breasts, you know, whatever yeah. meat you got, I'm into it. Uh, yeah. that whole And if it was just Quentin Tarantino, they'd stop at the feet. He's <laughs> like, do, do you like my feet? Yeah, I but, like your feet. By and the then way, it's just 20 uh, minutes of just a shot of her foot. Quentin Tarantino's uh, film company. Is, is called, I think it's called um, a, a, a band aside or a band of, it's named after Godard's uh, A Band Apart, the uh, the film that he did um, after Breathless, which is the one that you see in the intro that I made where it's like, Dana, and then they're doing the snapping. That film is the uh, is the one that Tarantino actually named his film production company after. It's amazing how influential he was. I, yeah, Godard is one of the greats. I mean, you know, it, it's sad to lose him. I understand why you'd want to do assisted suicide when you start to decline at 91. That shit comes at you fast, and then you don't yeah. really have a, a say over, you know, what happens from there. He's kind yeah. of a um, a, a persnickety man or like a, a you know, he's a, a troubled man, I guess, um, and hard to deal with. I, I I wouldn't leave myself up to the to my family and friends either. You know what I mean? Like, in yeah. the context of, like, and, and we'll go over probably the after party, the story of him and Truffaut, um, you know, kind of having their collaboration uh, split up. But like he was not easy to deal with. And I, and I can't imagine that if I had that level of artistic genius and if I had alienated that many people that I would want to decline and leave that to other people to deal with. Like be like, oh, yeah, I'm sure they'll take care of me. I'm sure they'll be equitable with my money when I'm like in a coma or something. I would just yeah. say. Hey, I'm 91. I've made it this far. Maybe it's time to euthanize. Yeah. Myself. Also, like like uh, Ter Terry Pratchett, um, you know, was uh, elected to do assisted suicide. He actually passed away before he, uh, um, you know, could do himself in. But uh, he spent the last couple of years of his life uh, touring around and just like um, 
meeting with as many of his fans as possible as a, as a way for everybody to kind of say goodbye. And um, uh, like about a year before he passed away, I got to see him speak in uh, DC and, and it was incredible. Uh, and so when he finally did pass away, I kind of felt like I had already made my peace with it. And I think that's the other thing that assisted suicide gives you is, is a chance to actually like get that closure. So like, like I might've ugly cried when David Bowie cr uh, died, but I was very much at peace with um, uh, Terry Pratchett's death. Oh, David Bowie also right before he died, did that entire uh, last album where he did the music video where he actually like um, watches himself pretty much like you watch him pass away, which is kind of an incredible thing. He knew he was dying too. Um, obviously, and then not... he still recorded a bunch of, uh, of uh, demos before he passed away. <laughs> yeah, well, so I should say about um, you know the career of Godard. Even in uh, 2017, he was still in the process of filmmaking. He released a big kind of thesis statement, film socialisme, uh, in 2010, which was kind of um, back to his his avant garde roots. I tried to watch it, really couldn't. I just, you know, I when, when you he get also, to a certain level of, yeah. I was going to say he also had a movie that came out in 2018, um, The Image Book, which it's it's sort of a collage film, but it's like the closest he's ever done to a horror movie, which I thought that was an interesting way for him to go out because The Image Book was sort of him reflecting on the way the world has become in the past um, few decades. But uh, yeah, he, he and, goes and, into some and interesting directions. That's available on um, on uh, Criterion Channel right now. If you want to go, they have they have, uh, they have 21 of his films, and you know I've spent. I didn't go like I tried to watch film socialisme. Was not uh, you know just didn't couldn't couldn't do it. It was just too avant garde for my for my taste. But yeah. um, they have everything from you know the image book. They have uh, all of his older stuff, pretty much like not all of it, but like you know a, a good chunk of his older stuff. They have a whole uh, you know they have a whole uh collection with him and anna karina like his you know his ex-wife who was kind of his muse um they started working with uh as a model in 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 mm -hmm. a band apart like which is a, which is a movie that i did watch uh within the last few days and actually really enjoyed that was like one of my favorites of the ones i watched did not as much care for um every man for himself that's just not my not my speed the second she was like hey the cow is sometimes lick my ass i'm just like i'm not this is not what i'm into but you know yeah. the other. Are you sure about that, Forrest? <laughs> I was was that truly that. his uh, his um, uh, from dusk till dawn moment, where, where uh, Quentin Tarantino wrote a part for himself where he drinks champagne off of uh, um. Well, this wasn't. He didn't say it. It was just a, a, it was a woman. Was like, <laughs> no, it was it was a. Uh, but he was in a cow costume, right? But he named he named the main character in this movie uh, Paul Goddard in in Every Man for Himself, and he's like this famous. Uh, you know, I, I think his wife is the filmmaker and he's like a writer, but in this movie, so that's kind of, it feels like that's kind of his corollary to himself maybe. And in the first, there's a lot of uh, ass, a lot of asses uh, in this movie, but the first, the first scene, um, a guy who works at the hotel runs up to him and was like, I'm sorry for coming on to you. Let me fuck you in the ass. And it's the Paul Goddard character. That's the first time you see him is this guy trying to fuck him in his car. So I, I don't know what that says about his own relationship to asses, but this movie did seem to be a a, a docu thesis, I guess. On he the... likes asses. Yeah, yeah. no, they spent <laughs> an inordinate amount of time filming that ass, uh, which which no complaints here. But uh, uh, he also uh, uh, he also asked some. He has the Paul Goddard character 
uh, ask a, a soccer coach if he ever thinks about feeling up his own daughter or something. So I don't know. This movie has a lot of, a, a a lot of elements coach. to it. That, he asked a soccer coach. Yeah. He's like, do you ever think about feeling up your own daughter? And then I, I don't know. It just was not my thing. Was uh was that movie was not my thing. And then, you know, I was reading the synopsis of it, and they're like, his first uh his first commercial project after years in the avant-garde wilderness. And I was like, this does not seem I, I guess like this is this is I guess in France maybe it's a uh, commercial. Yeah. Well well, I mean also like in France, uh there's a there's a uh, interesting song um where uh uh this 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 famous french songwriter uh wrote about like basically to, uh i think christina just left to steal the car of the car alarm <laughs> <laughs> um but, but but basically wrote this song that's a big innuendo to oral sex about lollipops and convinced this this underage girl to sing that's the not, song that's not uh that's not little wayne that did that <laughs> no no this is like decades before little wayne this is like back in the 60s and so they did this big production thing of this this girl singing about lollipops that was a very uh thinly veiled innuendo about uh um yeah uh, oral sex you want a thug. bottles in the club uh, whatever comes <laughs> but yeah anyways it's 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 a great uh it, it's it's kind of fun but that's just very france for you uh where were they just they really are weird over there <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, just, you know, moving right past that. What, what films have you guys seen by Godard though? I mean, I'm definitely curious. Uh, all the Star Trek movies. Stop. (laughs) No, that's not even the, it's, that's Picard. That's not even good. Like, that's not even like a Jean-Luc Picard. (laughs) I mean, he's named after him. What's the, There's actually this one episode where uh, Q walks in. He's like, oh "I'm my looking God. for a John no, Luck we're moving Pickard." Past this. We're moving past this. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm, I'm curious what uh, what Godard movies have have you guys watched? I've watched uh, like a handful of them, but I'll go last. I've I've only watched a handful too. I saw. I mean, of course, I had to watch Breathless when I was in film school, and Same. then there's a there's a few of his that like. I saw, like, I don't even know if they were subtitled in the theaters that I went to see them in, but they were, like, re-showing some of his films, and I can't even remember the titles of them. It was, like, a whole Godard marathon, and I saw it when I was, like, 24, so it, it's, like, a blur to me, but I've, I've seen a few of them, but Breathless was the one that I remembered the most. Yeah, I've seen, like, a handful as well, but especially, like, ones that he did, like, in the 60s, obviously, because I was, like, that's, like, kind of, like, my like favorite era of like especially like french cinema in general because i'm a huge like uh bridget fan Brigitte fan <laughs> it's kind of sad i like i like the sci-fi movie he did too not yeah. not to interrupt you i'm sorry um i think it was alphaville with um eddie constantine who ended up mm-hmm. doing he was in all kinds of like french noir movies but Godard introduced me to his work too, so I, I like Alphaville a lot. If anyone's seen, yeah, that. that's that's the one I haven't seen. The one that I remember a lot that I've and I've mentioned on the show is uh, Weekend, which is kind of his uh, exploration of of like a, a bunch of Alice in Wonderland style violence. I would say like each scene is a different like there's car crashes and they're walking through this thing and then you know you see like you see like bodies in a car and they're walking past that and the car's on fire and then so like it's uh, yeah Weekend is this I mean. So that that's that's a movie that I remember a lot because uh, I I kind of did a 
I got um, film struck for like a weekend when I was uh, just out of just out of college, I guess. It was like when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself um, after going and getting my fucking film degree or whatever and like realizing that nobody really wants you to edit anything after that. But so I went through like a weekend where like I took edibles and watched, I think, like five Godard movies in a row. I watched uh, Breathless again. I watched uh, Weekend. I watched contempt which is the one that we're talking about tonight and i've never remembered the name of the movie but i just kind of picked out of a hat like oh let's do this one because conan's not going to mind us talking about contempt and then um, have the court forced (laughs) and and weekend and uh so then i watched this this weekend i watched uh band of outsiders i watched every man for himself i watched some of like the short film stuff that he did which um, you know, it was interesting, but it's a little bit too uh, avant-garde for me. There's the one he did with Truffaut where it's just um, like a, a woman kind of just walking through, uh, you know, Paris as it's uh, overly flooded and like she's get talking about her day. And I'm like, I don't care what you did today. This doesn't it. like you, you, you had to go to school and it was flooded. OK, I've done that a million fucking times. But, uh, you know, so it, he's but he's like an interesting director. Oh, I've also seen uh, like Le, Le Chinese, which is like the one he did about the Maoists running around um, Paris. I think that's the first one that I watched where they're just kind of like kids that are like want to be revolutionaries, like LARPing around, LARPing around Paris. Oh, wow. <laughs> we've, we've never heard anyone do that today. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was, you know, I, I think I watched that one first because it was uh, right on the tail of me taking the, you know, the last semester of college. I took a class that was a survey of the Cultural Revolution. And they talked about um, how in France, you know, French, like a lot of French youth during like the new left period didn't want to be associated with Stalinism. So they got like, you know, attracted to Mao because they're like, well, this is socially, this is socialism without the, uh, the Stalin, uh, you know, whatever uh, chain around the neck, I guess. (laughs) And we're still at that period now, though Maoism is less, is less prominent because I think they've kind of tarnished the reputation with, all of the sex cults that uh, Varn talked to us about. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess we should talk about the weird sex cults in Paris. <laughs> That's just Paris, baby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah dude, beaches and all. Um, which, which is probably why um, uh, the the anonymous director of. Uh, um, uh, Chinatown is is uh, hanging out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new Maoism, MAGA communism. <laughs> yes. um, except no, except but, you idolize but, your landlord. So talk. <laughs> except you're you're working in tandem with your MAGA landlord, and then the uh, the whole communism part starts to go away, and you and your landlord just end up talking. I don't yes. I don't know where it goes from there. Like I don't like they're like, hey, talk to your MAGA neighbors, talk to your MAGA, you know, the people in your life. All right, well oh JG was upset about MAGA communism, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, so I so this is uh this is uh uh from an interview that he did around the time of this where he's talking about the scene with uh Bardot, uh Bridget Bardot. Uh, that you know at the beginning where they had to add a beginning and I think uh, when when they're talking in front of the thing and she has her her naked uh, her naked bottom out to the winds uh, they had to add those scenes to the American producers so this is uh, talking about the process of that she was not happy with that he wasn't happy with that mm-hmm. uh, the Jack Palance style American producers I guess really did want that though. Ugh. 
Americans. Dans le mépris, cette fameuse scène où Mlle Bardot se, se dénude complaisamment, est-ce que finalement elle vous a été imposée ou pas Pas complètement, non. Je vous l'ai beaucoup de, de tact, je trouve, au contraire. Est-ce que vous avez été imposée cette scène ou pas ah, C'est-à-dire, euh, je n'avais pas tourné au début, et puis euh, les producteurs américains m'ont dit c'est très beau, mais ce n'est pas commercial. Alors on voudrait une scène au début du film où où Bardot et Piccoli sont tout nus dans un, dans un lit en train de s'aimer. On voudrait la même chose au milieu et on voudrait la même chose à la fin. Alors, je veux dire, à la fin, c'est pas possible. Au milieu, euh, c'est pas possible puisqu'ils s'aiment plus. Ceci dit, je peux vous, je peux vous le faire d'une autre façon. Je vous le quand même. Et au début, euh, bon, d'accord, mais je peux vous la faire d'une certaine façon seulement. Est-ce que vous êtes d'accord Oui, alors euh, je l'ai fait comme ça. Enfin, vous l'aviez pas prévu au départ je l'ai prévu, mais enlevé, parce que je trouvais qu'elle était inutile. Je la trouve toujours inutile, mais... mais... Enfin, inutile par rapport au... Ça n'apporte rien de plus à l'histoire, si vous voulez. Mais je croyais que vous faisiez qu ce que vous vouliez. Ah oui, mais ça, je veux. Genre, moi, je le trouve très bien. Maintenant, je ne l'enlèverai pas. Si on me demandait de l'enlever, je voudrais l'enlever. À un moment, il y avait été question de l'enlever pour la censure, et ça, pour rien au monde. Oui. Mais euh, euh, Brigitte Bardot, par exemple, elle l'a accepté facilement alors Brigitte, elle avait accepté de faire ce film, elle a fait ce que je lui demande. Parce que dans le fond, maintenant, elle peut vraiment faire ce qu'elle veut, elle n'est plus obligée de, de se montrer dans une certaine tenue. Les producteurs sont déjà très contents, rien que de la voir, même habillée, elle vaut de l'or. Alors si elle l'a fait, ça veut dire quoi Que ça, ça lui plaît de se montrer ainsi Ou qu'il la connaissait bien Ça, je ne saurais vous dire, mais enfin, c'est un... C'est un personnage, et puis Brigitte Bardot, c'était dans ce film, c'était bien de la montrer au départ, euh, je veux dire, euh, il, il faut pas tricher du moment qu'on la déshabille un peu, autant la déshabiller totalement, ou bien, euh, ou bien pas du tout. Moi, ce que je comprends pas, c'est qu'elle accepte encore de faire une... ça alors qu'elle n'a plus besoin. Oui, moi, c'est pas une question d'accepter ou de pas accepter comme une jeune fille. C'est pas du tout érotique, c'est-à-dire accepter de se déshabiller ou pas déshabiller. Euh, c'est comme si vous disiez euh, Praxitel quand il peignait une, quand il sculptait Vénus euh, nue. Est-ce que Vénus ouais. acceptait de se déshabiller? On est d'accord, enfin, je ne veux pas être plus prude que, que je ne suis, mais je crois que c'est quand même une assez fausse raison, parce que des gens qui euh, voudraient voir Mlle Bardot déshabillée dans un film d'un mauvais metteur en scène ou d'un metteur en scène vulgaire n'osent pas y aller. Vous leur donnez bonne conscience, parce que par ces marchés, vous leur bah, donnez ça. Tant mieux, parce qu'ils ont bien raison. S'ils la trouvent jolie, euh, moi aussi. Euh, enfin, de... Certains de, de vos films ont été des échecs. Comment est-ce que vous ressentez les échecs I like how hostile that uh, that whole interview seems. Yeah, it's, like, it's like she was cool with it. And he's like, mm, not really, okay. Mm -hmm. Like, but but also too, Bridget Bardot was like a, a very popular sex symbol at the time. So of course, Americans are like, we want to see the goods. Yeah, but I mean, he didn't even seem like he was like, hey, she's not cool. That he seemed like he was being like kind of pervy about it. He's like, people that want to see her get naked, and he's like, yeah, but you know, it's art. Like, I don't know. I, but you know yeah, that, that is. That, I mean, also in the 1960s, that's what uh, people, especially in the early 60s, people went to French films to see nudity. Yeah. You know there there wasn't uh, you know there wasn't porn you know like like uh, you know the the, the porn theaters that you had to um, you know that that came later in the 60s. Uh, so at this point, yeah. you know, you had to go to art houses to watch French films. Yeah. You know, you still sometimes do. You watch French films just, you know, for the nudity. That's why we cover them on the... No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, like, 
And it's like what Sharon Tate said. She's like, you know, I'm, I'm fine with nudity if it has a purpose, if it's not like in a like perverted type of way, like something simple, like taking a bath, taking a shower, you know, a simple lovemaking scene, like nothing too graphic or like a violent rape scene. She's like, it has its purpose. And I'm like, yeah, true. But sometimes people just, you know, demand, demand and demand. Yeah. But I mean, I think in this, it kind of, I mean, I don't think it's completely unnecessary. I think that it kind of adds something in the beginning. You're like, oh, well, this is like a couple that's very much in love. And then you watch their relationship unravel. Like, not to say that I think that this movie could have, this movie could have definitely survived without it if they had, uh, done a scene it, it could have been done way more distastefully i'll say that i mean i yeah, thought it was yeah. pretty well done yeah yeah and, and, and i will so say that opening show, scene i think that, the movie it shows you that the day the same day right the same morning they're very much in love they're you know flirting around they're still uh like attached to each other they're they're in that it seems like they're in that passionate uh moment of a relationship where like despite the fact they've been together for a long time and they're still married they're still very much in love and still very much attached to each other and then you know for things to go kind of spiral out of control that fast you kind of need to see that in the beginning or else it's like all right well it seems like you guys were fighting from the beginning so i think it does that job well i don't i mean i think you could have done that without uh showing them naked because you could have you know you could have just uh written it in a different way or something but i i don't think it's an ineffective scene yeah, I think that scene really does help the film. Uh, and you're right. It didn't have to have the nudity in it, but the, the, the scene itself, like like the importance of the scene is is not the the ass. It was, uh, you know, them showing the, their relationship. Yeah, and, and like the almost puppy love style, like, and you'd assume that, you know, she because she says later in the movie, um, you know, you used to write crime novels and we were poor, but we were still happy. So you realize they've been together for a long time and this relationship is like this for a long time. And then it unravels uh, as fast as it does because he, she doesn't like his behavior and, and, you know, the and he's jealous of, uh, you know, the the even though he kind of pushes her in front of the American film producer as like kind of a currency almost, then he gets jealous about it and uh, transforms himself into Odysseus holding the fucking gun. (laughs) Like, so I I think that it it works for that because you have to realize how passionate and uh, um, I guess intertwined they were before this caper of madness started. (laughs) And they call it puppy love. <laughs> and uh, when uh, Fritz Lang, uh, which, which uh, by the way, I, I love the fact that he's in this movie. And I wonder if he was difficult to work with as a director, as he, uh, as an actor, as he was a director. You want um, to, uh, you want to find out? Oh, oh, we have the answer. Inquiring minds want to know. A hundred percent was because I watched an, a video that I watched an hour long thing where they're just yelling at each other over each other and debating <laughs> directorial styles but this is uh this is him talking about the you know and and i know that a good percentage of our audience hasn't actually seen this film so i hate to spoil it but this is them talking about the car accident scene and he uses that as an example of the kind of filmmaking that he would never do so yes i assume that he was quite <laughs> which interesting fact he is uh, last film was in 1960 so yeah, and, so and, you know there's like during... a couple year period uh, where he kind of just basically stopped making films, and he talks um, about that. Um, I think I have the the clip to talk about it in the uh, in the after party if you wanted. But he he talks about why that is uh, during their hour long thing where they're going back and forth. He talks about why he's getting back into it and uh, this kind of distaste he has, I guess, for filmmaking uh, to a certain level and like the lack of inspiration he had during that period. But this is uh, this is 
them shouting at each other. Well, just going back and forth. I think this is before it gets really uh, intense. Nous avons parlé de quelque chose de nos dinosaures quand nous avons commencé à travailler au fil muet. Nous avons, pour le répéter, nous n'avons pas lu la parole, nous avons lu seulement l'action. L'action, oui. Entendu. Alors, j'ai trouvé que nous avons parlé, euh, travaillé ensemble une grande différence, une différence que je crois c'est très important. Je crois que vous avez raison. Je parle maintenant de l'accident du car. L'accident de la voiture et quand, 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 quand Bardo et, et Bardo sont, sont morts. Sont sous, Alors, moi, sûrement, j'aurais fait, comme ils sont dans la voiture, la, la voiture marche plus vite, plus vite, plus vite. Peut-être qu'il y a quelque chose, le, le pneu, ou il ne peut pas faire ça. Je montrerai l'accident. Vous, vous ne le montrez pas. Vous avez seulement montré comment ils sont morts, ils sont entre deux camions. Pour vous, les conséquences étaient beaucoup plus importantes que l'accident s'en est. Et ça, je crois que c'est quelque chose qui est très intéressant, très important. Mais, en parlant, comme vous m'avez demandé, de comment euh, c'est, comme nous avons travaillé. Ça. Moi, on me dit, par exemple, que j'improvise beaucoup. Oui, Est-ce que vous, vous avez trouvé ça Parce que quand j'ai vu des... Oui. Les, films, par exemple, les araignées, je me souviens, il y a beaucoup de choses que vous avez fait dedans que j'ai fait aussi, et c'était il y a 30 ans. Ça a... un, peu, un peu comme la, euh, comme la nouvelle vague. Comme la... Oui. Je, suis, je suis très content que vous dites ça. Moi, je le trouvais aussi, je n'ai pas vu ces films depuis 30 ans, 40 ans, alors je ne parle pas de ça. Mais écoute, il y a une chose, une grande différence entre vous et moi. Vous travaillez dans une autre méthode. Moi, vous aimez l'improvisation, moi je ne l'aime pas. Mais, un metteur en scène, je crois qu'il doit être un, un créateur, je dis. Euh, je crois qu'un metteur en scène, en tout cas, le metteur en scène ne doit pas parler. Il ne doit pas écrire parce qu'il doit dire qu ce qu'il a à dire avec le film qu'il fait. Euh, si un metteur en scène a nécessaire le mot, l'écriture pour expliquer ce qu'il voulait dire, alors, dans mon opinion, ce n'est pas un bon film ou un vrai metteur en scène. Un metteur en scène qui dit à, à l'acteur, écoute, tu viens par ici, dans cette porte, et tu, tu sais, tu, tu as lu le manuscrit, et tu fais ça et ça, et du, euh, voilà le dialogue, alors quand tu as terminé, vous, Partez par ici, c'est pour moi un, un trafic cop, qu'est-ce que veut dire un, un agent de la circulation. Un flic de la circulation, ce n'est pas un metteur en scène. Yeah, I was uh, waiting for him to give advice on how to abuse women on his set. Uh, but uh, that's one of the things that Fritz Lang was famous for. Um. I, so he, he talks about throughout this entire thing how his style of direction is much more uh, almost documentarian, I guess, in nature, as opposed to the much more avant-garde kind of style of the French New Wave, which is an interesting, uh, like, back-and-forth argument to have, although, he, you know, Fritz Lang is pretty uh, pretentious about it the entire... Yeah. Which I mean, is kind you of know, yes, that, he's a documentarian. Kind of he really did try to drown those kids in uh, Metropolis. It <laughs> sort of reminds me of the, uh, the debates that... Um happened between like uh the the two documentarians frederick wiseman and um Werner herzog because 
Well, Wiseman was known for like making these films that had no narration. He just sort of, you know, filmed what was happening. And Herzog was like, no, no, you have to show uh, <coughs> the ecstatic truth. The filmmaker has to speak within the film itself. Uh, that's <laughs> sort of what that clip reminded me of. The uh, yeah, this, in this case, the it's the opposite. The German is yeah, yeah. saying that you should not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not... But there's yeah. You know, I know it is kind of funny that it's it's Werner Herzog saying the opposite point, and I think that every director now realizes that you know that there's no separating the like the director from the film, right? Like, and I mean, it, it kind of peaks during the uh, auteur era where it's kind of a almost like a thesis statement. I'm doing promo at the same time I'm talking, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, you know the auteur style of like um literally doing uh like a like a self-narrative within your film and like it's indetachable from who you are as a director but i mean regardless like there's an understanding that the director is kind of an author and uh it's interesting to hear fritz lang kind of say no just don't put any of yourself into it this is like a project and you're creating this uh you know this this spanning project and it's like almost like capturing a documentary and uh in a weird way yeah. I, I was gonna say in a weird way i i think fritz lang may have like uh, a slight point in the sense that, I mean, I, I think a director does work as, as an author of a film, but I also think people leave out that the actors bring something, right? Like an actor can bring a completely different interpretation to a role than maybe what the director initially expected. I think film is a very collaborative project, so I don't think there's a single author, which I, I think too many people look at film as like, they'll look at a Godard film and say, no, this is just Godard's film, but I think it's just as much like a Bardot film or a Jack Palance film or a Fritz Lang film as it is, you know, Godard's baby. Yeah. Because this is just like Tango and cash. <laughs> and I, well, it's also, it's a, it's a work in process, like a work in progress, I guess. Right. Like his own frustrations, it seems like, I, and I don't know this for a fact, but his own frustrations with working with these American producers seems to shine through. And the fact that, you know, he's, he has the sex scene in the beginning, he scraps it. He, it's very, it seems like very much he's working on the actual script for this uh, and working on the, the scenes and where people are going to be. Um, oh, by the way, I guess his parents are, his dad was named Paul Goddard. So that's maybe why he named that character in the other movie after him. But um, uh, like the, uh, yeah, like the, the dynamics of it seem to shift. And it seems like this movie is kind of about his own disillusionment with Hollywood cinema and uh, interrogating where, you know, the values of Hollywood cinema and the corruption of Hollywood cinema kind of comes into his own work and to the French new wave and like um, into the international film scene, I guess, and how it corrodes everything it touches. And for, uh, you know, it seems like it would be that during this process where these American producers are hitting him up for like, oh yeah, show some more, you know, show some more ass in this, like get them, get them in bed together. Like it would seem like that frustration would be borne out by the actual production, I'm sure. And in that way, that would add those American producers as the authors of the film as well in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you take what's, uh, what's happening and, 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 you know, get inspired by, by what's going on. Uh, Certainly hate, does help. I hate these Americans. I'm so inspired. To create and they probably film. they probably didn't speak French either. So like he could talk to, to them like right in front of like everybody who speaks French. So that's you know, another element like, I think in in a lot of his work is language. Like uh the like the disconnect between obviously you know in this film it's especially pronounced because Fritz Lang obviously speaks some French, but also I mean a lot of what he speaks is German, and so like to have the translator that has to translate for Fritz Lang uh to the americans 
um and then a trans like the same translator like francesca i think is their name um that he like you know gropes her bottom and that starts the the uh the emotional ennui of the film (laughs) um but like for the um well you know it peaks it i guess but uh yeah, for her to have to kind of translate through all these characters and you don't know anything about her. She doesn't say anything about herself, right? Like he asks like, oh, what did your boss do? Have you worked for him a long time? Like she's asking him all these, like, and she she blocks the answers to all these questions. You see that she is sad for that moment and he has that like uh, super lame corny guy line where he's like, you're too pretty to be sad, haha. But, uh, besides, but besides that, like you don't Just find out anything about her. Just smile if you're depressed. <laughs> but she's, but she's uh kind of the cipher that all of the communications between everybody has have to go through because nobody's speaking the same language and you know it's funny that the two characters that do speak the same language i mean not to get too uh whoa deep bro here but the two characters that do speak the same language you know paul and camille are the ones that uh, have a disconnect in communication through this actual movie which is you know this movie's like an onion it's many <laughs> layers and they all make you cry. <laughs> this movie's like an ogre. <laughs> <laughs> Ogres of layers. What? Um, <laughs> it's not like a happy ogre like in Shrek, though. It's no. very sad, like depressing. This is, a, <laughs> this is an ogre <laughs> suffering from... Uh, this is a French ogre. He's suffering from... From uh, ogre. No, I was going to say ogui. 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 <laughs> but, yeah, I mean... It is. It is a sad. It's it, it. It's Shrek before he goes on the adventure. It's Shrek, I, as I'd imagine, he is in in the swamp with with all the fairy tale creatures. <laughs> oh, without donkey. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's uh, there. <laughs> Fritz Lang couldn't even finish the Odyssey. He has no room to talk shit. I kind of. I mean, he seems like he's still working on it at the end, and that's kind of one of the most jarring scenes, right? Like you see the actual uh, producer of the film, and it's almost like, well, Hollywood keeps going, whether or not you're a part of it, right? Like you could be the the main financier, and it's like Fritz Lang is still gonna like he's just gonna find another producer, I'm sure, or or you know the money's in the will for the guy working on the movie. I'm not quite sure what the financing situation is. They don't make that clear, but he just keeps working on the movie despite the fact that. Uh, you know, the, the producer of it is, you know, dead after hitting a, a fucking, uh, you know, big ass truck. Yeah, which, uh, you know, one thing that was kind of driving me crazy is uh, I remember uh, I used to hang out at the Word and Pictures Museum, which was a comic book art museum owned by uh, Kevin Eastman, the uh, co-creator of the Ninja Turtles. And uh, one of the rules in Hollywood is never make a movie with your own money. And Kevin Eastman made that mistake with Heavy Metal uh, Fact 2, uh, which is the sequel to the uh, animated films, uh, film Heavy Metal. Because uh, at the, that point in time, Kevin Eastman owned the rights to Heavy Metal Magazine uh, and uh, basically sunk a lot of money into this movie that was absolutely mediocre uh, and uh, came out direct to video you know, several years later. Um, I only very recently watched it because for a long time it was, a, it was too traumatic for me to watch the movie, uh, because, because like he had to close down the word of pictures museum because of, uh, uh, the financial involvement of it. And, so, and so, then Andy had nowhere to hang out. Nowhere and Andrew Lloyd Webber made the same mistake too, with using his really useful group to do the Phantom of the Opera. So like it's sometimes yeah. it's good to have Hollywood or like a big budget studio involved. So, so, so that made it seem very strange that Jack Palance was talking about that it being his money because in Hollywood, like I said, it's never 
their money. He might be in charge of the money from the studio, but it's not his money per se. Well, I mean, much like a um, <laughs> legend has it, he's still filming. Stevie's killing it with his comments. Um, <laughs> but uh, like, but like his money, I mean, who knows if it's like he's kind of the producer as a role is kind of almost like a cipher for you know the money to go through, like from wherever it comes from. And you could assume that when he goes to Rome or whatever, he's uh trying to collect more money from whatever situation he can. Um, and and then you know, has the fucking accident that kills him and his new 28 year old bride, which you know, there's no way maybe she's 28 in this, I don't know, but. <laughs> Yeah, well, the other thing, too, is... is yeah, uh, it's the same age. <laughs> Me and Bridget Bardot. <laughs> uh, you know, the other thing, too, is is, is probably uh, he was in Rome trying to get uh, the mafia to invest in uh, money laundering because, honestly, the best films, and this is this is going to be my, uh, one of my theses here, the best films are made with mafia money. Yeah, I mean, well, they make fun of that in The Sopranos, right? Like, they make fun of the, the fact that they literally have the mafia fucking pay for uh, Christie's film that <laughs> he makes with the with the screenwriter friend that he later whacks um, in a drunken rage. But uh, so here here is the the CinemaScope one that I was talking about, um, where they're talking about. Uh, hold on, I see which one. Is, I think it's this one, but. Um, so this is this is the the actual uh so like the cinematographer that we saw in the beginning, which let, let me look up his name really fast, but um, Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> no, this movie's above water. This movie's filmed by water, but it's not. No. <laughs> um, so uh, that was the first Raoul, person I could think of. <laughs> Raoul Coutard, I guess is his name. Um, I, I like him. I oh, watched wow. his. I watched his uh twenty six minute Criterion has a twenty six minute interview with him where he wow. talks about the process of like making the actual film. And I stopped when he started talking about like the actors and stuff. Cause like, I don't, I don't, I don't care about your thoughts about the actors. Like you're just some old guy, but like, uh, <laughs> the Bridget Bardot, she is so beautiful. Mm. This is, this is, uh, he's talking about the process of getting a uh, cinemascope and like the issues with, filming that way and they make fun of it in this movie right like he they have fritz langs in there and he's like oh cinema scopes is for uh snakes and funerals or whatever he, he has that line Alors, au début, Jean-Luc a, a, fait un, a commencé à faire un filmoscope. On le voit de la façon dont il utilise le cinémascope en large, etc. Et puis, euh, petit à petit, euh, ça s'est évadé. C'était bon, on se retrouvait avec un grand format. Bon, on l'utilise, mais on ne l'utilise pas en, en tant que moyen. Donc, je veux dire, il n'était pas, pas très à cheval sur, euh, sur les, les, les difficultés. En plus, comme il n'aimait pas du tout que les images les, qui étaient des tordues, etc. Donc, euh, on pouvait arriver à dire, dire non, non, il faut mieux carrer comme ça. Bon, alors, par contre, il, là, dans, dans le mépris, il, il a fait plein de cadrages où on met les têtes complètement en bas, euh, alors qu'il y a beaucoup d'air au-dessus, euh, où ils se mettent complètement de travers, etc. C'est un truc qu'il a beaucoup aimé, mais il l'aurait fait euh, si ça avait été un autre format, je pense. Quand on a, alors, à propos du format, 
Alors, je qu'il y avait, euh, avait un principe à cette époque-là, c'était, si on fait un film en noir et blanc, il sera en format académique, c'est-à-dire 1.33. Et si c'est en couleur, il est forcément en cinémascope. Ça, c'était son, son grand truc. Alors, il n'y a qu'à regarder dans sa production, euh, tout, tout, tout a été fait comme ça, jusqu'à ce que qu'il s'arrête de faire des films, euh, je ne me souviens plus à quelle date. Bon. Alors, là, on a utilisé... Alors, quand on a démarré le, quand on a démarré le, le tournage de, de Mépris, bon, ça se passait en Italie, puisqu'on devait tourner en Italie et puis qu'on devait être développé chez Technicolor. Bon, donc, on est allé chez Technicolor et là, ils nous ont montré un procédé révolutionnaire qui était le Techniscope, qui était en deux perfos. Bon, alors du coup, comme on était toujours avec Jean-Luc à la pointe du progrès et de, de, de tout ce nouveau, on a dit, bon, on va faire comme ça. Mais malheureusement, chez Technicolor, ils n'ont pas été foutus de donner une caméra pour pouvoir faire le film. Ce qui fait que donc, on a tourné en Francescope. Le cinémascope, c'est un objectif normal qui est sur la caméra et devant, on met un, un procédé révolutionnaire qui était le techniscope, qui était en deux perfos. Bon, alors du coup, comme on était toujours avec Jean-Luc à la pointe du progrès et de, de, de tout ce nouveau, on a dit, bon, on va faire comme ça. Mais malheureusement, chez Technicolor, ils n'ont pas été foutus de donner une caméra pour pouvoir faire le film. Ce qui fait que donc, on a tourné en francescope. Le cinémascope, c'est un objectif normal qui est sur la caméra et devant, on met un, un objectif qu'on appelle un, un objectif cylindrique parce qu'effectivement, il est cylindrique qui permet de, de doubler la largeur. On appelle ça un hypergonard. Bon. Et alors, dans le cinémascope, à chaque fois qu'on change de point, il faut faire le point sur l'objectif et le point sur l'hypergonard. Et comme ça aurait été trop facile que ce soit dans le même sens, c'était gravé dans les deux sens, ce qui fait qu'il fallait deux personnes pour faire le point hein, qui se fait sur l'hypergonard. Bon. Et puis, il y a le système Francescope qui a été fait. Lui, alors, l'idée du Francescope, c'était de, de, de mettre l'objectif à une réglée sur l'hyperfocale, c'est-à-dire en principe 15 mètres. Et on ne touchait pas du tout l'objectif et on ne faisait le point que sur l'hypergonard. Ce qui, c'était une grosse simplicité. Bon, et quand on a fait donc euh, le mépris, euh, on, on a utilisé ce système. Et pour... On a utilisé également ce système-là pour la première fois avec un petit zoom. C'est un système relativement simple, sauf que c'était les zooms c'était très compliqué à faire puisque dans, on n'avait pas de viseur sur le faire. Donc il fallait imaginer quand on faisait un petit bout de zoom euh, quelle était l'image dans le viseur qu'on avait devant les yeux. C'était donc un truc très complexe. Awesome to zoom without a lens. That yeah, like great. as someone as someone that actually uh, does, like you know, has has taken classes and like actually gets to work with cameras. Like it sounds like a nightmare to actually have to zoom without uh, a viewfinder where you can actually look into it and like see what you're you have to be like. So I'm guessing that it's here. Like actually do the measurements, which is something that he talks about um, when he's talking about the color, right? Like the actual process of like printing it and then actually cutting the film together. Like you realize how much fucking harder it was. To do all, I mean, it's a, they're, they're all very technical processes. And like, obviously, that's why a lot of older filmmakers consider themselves like technicians rather than artists a lot of times. I mean, not directors like Godard, but like, you know, people like Fritz Lang, I'm sure if you if you talk to him about like what he considers himself, it would be far more technical than artistic. And, uh, and I would say James Cameron is probably like the, the modern equivalent of that with his development of, uh, you know, new camera technologies. 
Yeah, but I mean, even even in that uh, capacity, right? Like you're kind of working on stuff on an actual computer and you're working on, you know, like CGI and like different, um, like like digital digital filmmaking rather than actually like sitting there and being like, hey, maybe it's time to cut these things. I mean, maybe he worked that way for, uh, for like aliens or whatever, like when, you know, really? in the eighties and stuff, but like, that's or, like or you know, even, even like the, uh, the, uh, what is it? The inline VHS, uh, editing. I don't know if, uh, am I the only person here who has experience with that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that takes me back to my summer camp of 1995. I, uh, uh, went to summer camp. Uh, I, I graduated from high school and then went to summer camp because like, I knew I could never do that again. Uh, and, uh, I was like older than all the counselors and everything. And I'm like, why, why are you here? And I'm like, dude, I just graduated from high school. I can never go to summer camp ever again for the rest of my life. So and that's when you I'm met, gonna... and that's when you met John Luke Picard, you know? Yes. And you got to, <laughs> you got to fly on the, fly on the old enterprise. Yeah. No, actually that was an earlier summer camp when I fell off that swing. Uh, but that's a whole other story. And he bought you tacos. Tacos. Taco. <laughs> How did he say it? Tacos. <laughs> it was like ta ta tacos. Yeah. Tacos. Ta yeah. Um, tacos. Tic tac. <laughs> but yeah, like it, it's kind of it's kind of just fascinating for me as somebody to have watched him talk about that for as long as I did last night. Um, as someone that kind of does editing for like a job and you know on and off at least freelance, like and does uh filmmaking when I can, like. You know he goes out with a camera to at least shoot like people's live shows and stuff like it's kind of fascinating to have him be like yeah so like you know to get it colored the right way like we had to go to a different country number one back to france after shooting the whole thing in italy because we didn't like the thing you have to buy uh its own version of film stock and then from that point like then you have to actually uh sit back and like actually like you know measure out what you want to zoom into and you know even for like the scenes when it's the uh the, like the statues where they're shooting like the fake uh fritz lang movie like you still have to go and like actually kind of mentally measure out how far the distances are what's up karthik sorry i'm in the middle of the thought um like measure no, 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 out please, please keep going uh like I'm, what, I'm like yeah what you think the actual distances are because you don't have a viewfinder to actually do that and like uh you know there's a he continues on with the second clip i mean we can watch the second clip if you want but he actually shows you like the the set that he, they're shooting in and they talks about the tracking shot like you know the shot that goes up and down like it's a um you know like you're watching a seesaw and like the actual process of the reason that they had to do that is because the apartment is too small to actually have the technicolor camera they rented out um well it wasn't i mean the france color or whatever um uh camera that they you know that they rented out uh is too big for the actual apartment so like they needed to figure out a way to actually shoot both of them and they came up with that idea of doing the uh the dolly shot you know and and tracking between them because they actually couldn't fit the uh camera in a way that would let you see both actors at the same time at that table so like it's kind of a, an intensive process of all of these different things and he, he actually showed uh in that in the second clip but we'll watch that at the after party i guess but like he actually shows you like how small the apartment itself is as a set and like <laughs> the process of actually getting that camera into there is insane and the cameras are huge i mean we even see that in the film like, like there's yeah this beautiful like like the uh after the after we we stare at her ass for a while and talk about her feet um you know then there's that 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 long shot of the uh the camera slowly coming at you uh on on the uh on the track 
and it's uh you know you really get to see like like the guy turning the cranks and everything like that to adjust the, the level it was fascinating to see that yeah and the fact that like first you see the tracking shot between them obviously and there it's on the dolly and you can tell it's on the dolly but like obviously you don't see it because you know it's you're, you're watching it as a viewer but then at the end to have them do like the exact same shot but they're following uh odysseus along the cliff line and uh following him down like this and doing the same exact thing where he actually has to walk in tandem with the actual camera while going like this is like kind of a it's an interesting corollary to um like this this world where you know filmmaking or the hollywood style of filmmaking i guess is corroding this guy's very soul and you know you're kind of watching it through the eyes of a camera like it's an incredible incredibly meta way to um do this entire uh this entire story like it's the story of corruption and degradation that you're actually watching as an audience member through the very same lens that they're making odysseus <laughs> the odyssey um since like you know uh, i haven't uh, said anything and i just like i hope everybody's doing well uh, i just wanted to uh, just we like, introduced you, know, you in the beginning by the way we no, i know i, I mean i just wanted to I, I wanted to start with this uh, line that uh, is at he attributes to bertolt brecht because i feel like you can't watch this movie without like you know uh, reckoning with the fact that like bertolt brecht basically influences practically every element of it uh, and uh, Fritz Lang like uh, quotes this. Uh, it's kind of crazy that Fritz Lang every time he speaks, he's constantly quoting somebody else. He's never like really sharing his own views, unless like you know uh, they're very pithy, they're very short. Uh, but then he quotes this line by Bertolt Brecht, which says, "Every morning to earn my bread, I go to the market where lies are sold, and hopeful I get in line with the other sellers." And uh, this guy asks, uh, "What's his name, Paul? What's that about?" And Fritz Lang says. Hollywood and it's kind of interesting that like uh, the, the whole premise of the movie seems to be kind of like a shitting on uh, the corporate like basically the corporatization and the the studio control uh, that Hollywood brings to the table uh, in a way like it cucks the, the filmmaker quite literally I think and and I, I think like that that kind of is showcased uh, in the fact that like he actually loses the woman to the producer which is supposed to be like the the kind of literal representation of his figurative uh the filmmaker's figurative cucking uh, in this movie and and what i noticed uh you know the, the third time i guess watching it through in my life uh a couple of days ago is and, I, and i've noticed this like you know before this but like how many times he seems to um actually like uh talk about how he thinks like obviously he's giving his reading of, of the odyssey the entire time and he's like, oh, well, you know, uh, it's because, you know, she cheated on him and he's upset and he lets her, you know, see the suitor. And then he's like, and then he kills her suitors and he brings the gun with him and then doesn't have the the heart or like the, the mind to pull the trigger because he's kind of using her as a form of currency at the same time. So he's like, I'm jealous, but I'm also trying to better my career and my ambitions, which obviously he lies to himself and says this is about my own um you know, my own uh, keeping a roof over both of our heads. But, you know, it's not. It's about his own prestige. And in that way, it kind of uh, is reminiscent of, like, Barton Fink, where mm. throughout the movie he's, like, you know, talking about how real he is. And he's kind of – and realness is, is a topic throughout this too, right? Like, what's reality? What's fiction? And uh, Fritz Lang talks about, you know, his his reading of the Odyssey is that there's no um, – like, they're not, they're not going against nature. They're not fighting nature, right? Like, they're living in harmony with nature, and, and it's an understanding that this is the way the world is. And even when it's, like, a myth where they're fighting the gods, like, the gods themselves are the natural forces in the world. 
Yeah. And, and, and Hollywood and Hollywood is a, I guess my last thing is Hollywood's kind of a, um, a corruption of that. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, the, the place where, uh, the, the place where like, uh, he also, uh, kind of constantly the, the fights that he has with her, uh, he also seemed to be about the, it, it's kind of interesting because like the fights, especially, uh, go back and forth between like her, uh, encouraging him and her discouraging him, which also like reminds me of, uh, this kind of interaction between, uh, I don't know if anybody's read this, but like between uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's like characters in uh, The Beautiful and the Damned, where they basically have this kind of quality of uh, the guy wants to just like be a very existential character, uh, like go where the road takes me kind of person. Um, and the woman is also like that. But then like the guy occasionally has like these burst spurts of ambition and uh, the, the woman kind of like is supposed to, weigh him down from uh, you know pursuing his goals or something like that which is kind of like what f scott fitzgerald writes in that book because it's supposed to be a a kind of portrait of uh, uh, his relationship with zelda and stuff like that too so you kind of see a little bit of that where he is getting like the paul character is getting a little bit of these aspirations he gets the germ but then he has to pursue them um, and then he kind of ends up losing his kind of so to say control over his wife because of his pursuit of uh, his ambitions and success and stuff like that. So, yeah, and he, um, let, he lets her get away um, without like really fighting for her because he's kind of lame. like he's kind of left to the well, lame, but also left to the, to the point where he's kind of uh, resigned to the fact that she's a kind of currency for his moving forward, which makes it um, all that much more, I guess, ironic in a in a you know a universal sense that they're killed and then he doesn't really get anything out of it in the end he just lost his wife and this guy's dead and like you know i mean hollywood itself i guess has crashed into <laughs> the uh you know the, the the car and like you don't even see them die you know so it's like uh it, it's kind of just fascinating that that's the fact and all of these questions i think throughout throughout the movie that i mean fritz lang kind of quotes a bunch of stuff where he's like um you know, like this is the real, like this is nature. We're kind of just, uh, you know, um, we're giving into nature and we're not fighting it. And the human relationship to nature is obviously uh, corrupted in itself. And like the the Greek relationship to nature, which I like, who knows, if, you know, but like the Greek relationship to nature is the pure one because they've just accepted the fact that the forces of nature are like these omnipresent deities. And I don't know, it's kind of uh, a, yeah. a, a commentary, I think, on culture, cultural forces themselves. What's really fascinating is also, and I don't know if this would be a spoiler, because uh, I'll just like go to the extent of saying that their death in the end. Uh, it's already, kind of we, already, we already watched a clip where they show the... Oh, okay. But it was in French, so so our audio listeners didn't know that until right now. <laughs> okay, so uh, it seems like uh, somewhere like three quarters into the movie, uh, Fritz Lang, actually, they have this conversation where he's walking back, and this is where this is right before uh he catches them uh, you know making out or whatever um and like uh fritz lang basically tells uh, this guy paul uh that like murder is no resolution so when he says like you kill uh, the suitors and then he says uh, but murder is no resolution and it's kind of a very cool meta statement because 
Well, uh, she's also the reading a book in the bathtub. That's a book of his, his supposedly his quotes. Yeah, yeah. It's the same, so it's like the same kind of theme that, like, yeah, if you murder your wife or something, and you murder like you know her suitors, and then you murder her, like you don't have the wife anymore. It's not like you resolve the problem where you want right, to right, right. Like, yeah, and then and then in the end, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like the movie ends on the note of them both dying, which is in a in a in a way you could argue that it's the uh, it's the director or the uh, the the scriptwriter or the filmmaker killing the wife in order to liberate odysseus or whatever uh, but that doesn't really you know liberate him either because you know and 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 uh, to add to that the death is uh, something that occurs in such an impossible fashion like you can't die like that that's a very stupid car crash and i actually one of the things i remember last uh, when i watched it in, in like a film class uh, i watched it with commentary and like basically the ending is supposed to be a, a kind of sign of an impossible kind of uh, ending which is that like you can't really get hit by two trucks that are reversing <laughs> into your car which is impo- which is absurd and that's the whole and, point. and they like, also don't fly out of like they're just dead in the car like you know what i mean like the car the impact like you you'd normally fly out of the top because that's the whole thing with uh having like, and they also and they also like uh face opposite directions so it's like if if two trucks hit you if anything they should uh you know move in the opposite direction which means that they they'll have to collide with each other but in this case like they actually diverge so that's like an impossible accident uh which shows that I, like i, I, I mean I unless friend, they hit each other a, and just fell off to the side i had a friend that died in a convertible a few years ago and like he flew like 15 feet like out of the car like for it to just kind of be like a a, a simple like um yeah i know that's kind of just a very dark thing to just use as an example but like for it to just kind of have them just both lying down in that like right. they, they didn't go like the car's not even like to, like completely totaled you know what i mean like they've just hit the thing and he leaves it as a point where you're kind of almost looking at them like sleeping it seems like you know what i mean like they're not it's not like this uh i mean he has like a little bit of blood around them or whatever but it's not like a, a death that you're like watching this whole thing uh transpire and they're actually like crushed in the car like they're just kind of ma- manichaean i guess or whatever you'd want to call it yeah, so sorry to be here about your friend, man. Like, uh, that's first of all, I have to say that. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, it was all, a really, it was, it was a really badly. But like, I, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, in in the capacity of like that not being a death that you can, uh, you know. And I've been in a car, in a, in a car accident that was pretty bad too. Like, it, it's not, that's not how it happened. Like, you, like, there's no situation where you're in a car, like, two people are dead in the car, and they're just kind of like this. You know what I mean? Like, the, it's it's a grotesque. Uh, a transfiction i guess or a, like a transformation of the human body like and there's there's none of that they've just kind of hit a semi truck and well, yeah. i mean it reminds me of that samuel fuller quote where he's just like i lie with my films you know when somebody gets killed in war like their body parts fly everywhere uh but when somebody uh when i kill somebody on screen they just fall over right and which it's, and it's of, a, which is what war films have kind of tried to like no pun intended blow apart like some of the most <laughs> grotesque and really like gritty deaths i think are like non-theatrical deaths are in war films because it's you know they're trying to show you the reality of it and i guess that that is the point in this like they're not trying to show you the actual uh revealed reality of any of this because they're just kind of it's like well they're dead now you don't get anything it's the willy wonka like you get nothing uh <laughs> you get nothing Good yeah, day, sir. <laughs> Your wife's dead, bro. 
What are you, what are you what? like? What are you gonna? What are you? What are you gonna do? For, and then Fritz Lang really asks him, and you you can't really tell. I mean, assumably he's heard that the wife and uh, you know uh, Jack Palance's uh, producer Jeremy Prokofovich or whatever has got. Like, yeah, presumably you've heard that they've both gotten killed, or they've heard in the story. But like, they don't. There's no acknowledgement of it, right? Like he's just on his way out, and he's like, "Well, I guess I'm leaving." And he's like, "Oh, what are you gonna do now?" And he's like, "I don't know. Maybe work on my play." And he's like, "Well, I hope I, you know." See you, see you around, man. Okay, yeah. let's uh, let's finish this film, and it's it's almost like a, it's it's almost like you're watching a machine, I think, and you can just kind of uh, swap out the parts in the machine. It doesn't really matter in the end. Like Fritz Lang is just going to be working on his movie, and you know Paul's going to be, you know, doing whatever he's doing. Like uh, I don't know, fucking, he's going to find another twenty eight year old and just <laughs> and 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 say, hey, you want to live in this apartment? I'm a playwright. Like there's no. Uh, emotional resonance in that sense i mean he he feels it for a second when he brings the gun with him and then gets handed the gun but like uh, they're living in this fantasy world i guess where these things don't have the emotional uh, resonance that they do in real life like you'd be horrified if you lost your 28 year old wife and and like you know the like it would be a, a a devastating experience he doesn't seem devastated by it as he's walking away he just seems like well i guess i'm off to my next adventure but, but that's going on 29 <laughs> But that's like also the kind of, I think, uh, the, the cinematic representation of an existential philosophy, I suppose, because uh, he does like say in his interpretation of Odysseus, like he asked a simple question, uh, Ulysses, a uh, simple question of the Odyssey, uh, like why is uh, Ulysses even traveling? Why does he not go home? Why doesn't he return for 10 years? And he says he doesn't return for 10 years because he doesn't want to. Uh, and that's yeah. like a very interesting kind of way to, I mean, it seems like a simple explanation but that's what existentialism is basically it's that like you get to decide ultimately and i feel like uh in a kind of way every character does that like uh except for maybe the 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 american guy which is kind of strange and uh, i don't know if this is like too much of a tangential uh discussion um i was like reminded of uh, the movie dreamers uh in which like i feel like there's a bertolucci's movie which in which like there's a slightly more favorable portrayal of an American there also like an American kind of interferes in a French uh, relationship which in the dreamers context it's a you know like an incestuous kind of twin sibling relationship um, which supposedly doesn't involve sex uh, but in this case like it's it's an American interfering uh, in a marriage uh, but in both of those contexts like there's a there's a severe tension between like you know the characters wanting to uh, like be with each other uh, and be French, whatever that is, or which means like this existential, like, you know, I go where the road takes me, I, but I still get to be the master of my own fate uh, kind of thing. Uh, but also on the other hand, like the American kind of comes in and actually gives these people a sort of reason to exist and like or purpose. Because like without the American coming in, these they actually kind of, uh, they're almost bored with each other. So it's like he comes and makes their lives exciting in a kind of way. Well, she and, and she them... openly expresses that she's bored over and over again throughout mm -hmm. the movie. But, you know, you can, uh, I guess, project oh, onto the cool. fact that she's just like, <laughs> and you're 28, which I am too. So I guess I'm not. I'm going to out a few weeks. Um, but Very like, I, I, I think that. Which Christina, I want to get your thoughts on some of this stuff too, because you haven't, you know, you haven't talked that much this. Uh, this episode but too, too um, much on we over there in that corner yeah, yeah 
Also, by the way, guys, my for those who can see us, my skeleton Frank says hello. He's my bisexual line skeleton. <laughs> but yeah, I I really did enjoy this film. I also like every like um just I just think about like Richard Bordeaux and the fact that she was like this phenomena in like the in the 60s and then she just ends her career by like 1973 and she kind of like gets away from like the public eye and whatnot like it's kind of sad because she's considered still like a fixture i mean every day i still see like girls do like Bridget bordeaux like makeup tutorials and stuff like that like her her look is very iconic especially like when it comes to like french uh women in makeup yeah, well, and and I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll grab I'll grab some of this in between when we do the after party in a little bit and uh, this episode. There's a film that um, was shot concurrently to this film where it's uh, uh, I can't think of the director off off the top of my head because he's he's uh, he he was like traveling with them and he made two films. He made one film that's uh, Godard and Bridget Bardot and he kind of filmed them working together. But there's a second film called Paparazzi, which uh, you know the island they were filming on in Capri. Um, you know, Lady Gaga, I guess, stole the the, the title of this film, but uh, no, but the the island they were working on in Capri, uh, you know, you couldn't get there except by boat, and I guess she was so popular and such an icon of of, of you know sexuality, like such a uh, you know a, like a like a figure of uh, of beauty or whatever that um, people would actually go take their boats, like their speedboats, from the Italian mainland and actually speedboat to this island in Capri. And like try to get a glimpse of her and you couldn't actually get onto the island without um, like journalists and stuff and you couldn't actually get onto the island without actually you know being allowed to because it's very small like you see it in the movie um a bunch of times so this guy kind of uh filmed the paparazzi filming her and and the process of like how many actual um like like you know stories they got out of it and how much she was shown in magazines during this time period and like it's kind of uh, amazing because like you, you have to think about like just kind of the, the fact that it's just kind of an island in the middle of nowhere and they're actually taking their boats like, oh, I heard she's on this island. Let me actually go there and try to get pictures to sell the magazines. How how do you feel uh, about like her, Bridget Bardot, especially uh, because she's so iconic and like, you know, inseparable from the fact that she's a French uh, actress? Uh, how do you feel about her and Camille as the character as being a metaphor for French cinema itself? Christina, because, let's hear your thoughts on this. Well, I mean, like, especially with like the French New Wave cinema, there's always, there's always like, like, she represented like the staple for that in my, in like from, from like in my opinion, you know, like whatever. You as think as of, Godard, I mean, at least in retrospect, has kind of come to, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. but no, yeah. I keep going. I'm just saying, like, it's interesting that it's a, it's a, they're both kind of the staples of of this era of French cinema. Yeah, and like it seems like a lot of actresses were trying to especially try to replicate what she was able to do like when people think of her they just think of, of just like a look but no she could act she could act like she could act her ass off like we like us americans don't really think of her as an actress we think of her as just like this this image. star right yeah like this the star this image this model and nothing more but like if you're someone who's deep into like French cinema, especially like New Wave era in the 60s, you understand that she was more than just a pretty face. She's still alive, too, by the way. Yeah. She's uh she's 87, Maybe. but she's she's uh she's she's living. And she yeah. should come on the show. 
she's, a, she's apparently being very racist and like calling like indigenous people savages and stuff. Yeah, like that. she's yeah. like deeply Islamophobic and she's hella yes. bigoted too. Well, 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 we won't have Karthik on when she comes on the show. <laughs> yeah. Well, all of the people they don't uh, they they don't have us French customs. They do not uh, make the, the cinema where you show the bottom. <laughs> I do, um, I do. I want to second what Christina said, though. I do think Bardot is very good in this film, you know, and it's not just, I mean, I, she's obviously extremely attractive, right? But she also, uh, just the way she conveys expressions through her eyes and whatnot, I think, I think there's a lot going on there with her character. Yeah. I mean, just to kind of, uh, uh, really horribly, uh, bookend this, uh, I, I watched Bad Girls with, um, uh, Drew Barrymore and and uh, Madeline Stowe and and uh, uh, it's, it's a western. Pollute, why do you pollute this podcast every time you open your mouth? But but <laughs> um, the reason why I bring that up is like like you know um and, and <laughs> um because like like you know um uh, at this time like like uh, I you know had a absolute monster crush on Drew Barrymore, which is why I rewatched the movie because I remember liking the movie back in the day, and I'm like. Oh no, no! I just like Drew Barrymore, um, but but uh, the thing is though is like Drew Barrymore is no Bridget Bardot. Like there 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 isn't that uh, the the nuance the performance. Uh, you know, Drew Barrymore was just to stand there and look pretty and occasionally pull out a gun and shoot somebody. Um, but but uh, you know, whereas uh, you know Bridget Bardot has like a very meaty part and really delivers in the subtlety of the performance. You know what's funny? Uh, you know when she dated. Pen. You know when. Oh, you know when she dated? Uh, Maybe not come on the show. You know when? She, well, that would be like your other friend that came on the show, and uh, now post the uh, like the pro uh, the, the pro DeSantis things. Hey, oh, she man. was a great guest. That's she all was a say. great guest. She was a great guest talking about fantasy. But you know, I'm glad there was no DeSantis character in that movie. Um, no, so uh, Fabrizio, you know, from the from the Strokes, like the drummer. Um, before he before he dropped out of college to uh, to be with the Strokes like full time, like before they had officially blown up, I guess he was in the sculpture program with my mom uh, at SUNY New Paltz, like in town, and it was uh, it was when he was dating Drew Barrymore, and I guess they they came to Bacchus, like the place that I go to drag shows, but like this is before they had drag shows there, and she came out one night like at the end of the semester or something, and like was getting drunk at the fucking local bar. My mom told me that story. It was like, because when I was a kid, I had a crush on Drew Barrymore. And she's like, oh, I've met Drew Barrymore. She came to the end uh, celebration for our sculpture program. And I was like, and you didn't tell me? And she's yeah, like, and Drew, like, Drew Barrymore like, getting drunk at the bar could be like from any time from when she was like eight to like now. So, Oh, well, Drew no, Barrymore, she was, come on, movie night extravaganza so we can talk about Charlie's Angels. But this was, I mean, she wasn't like an adult. Like this is, you know, but yeah. I, I was young enough that like, I, I was just like, but you didn't tell me she was in town. Well, I was like, you were, you were like six. Like, why would I have told you that? Come on. When I was six, I knew about Drew Barrymore. So come on, E.T., yo. Man, no, I she, meant like, really why would she? really does preserve her family's legacy though. You can tell but, she appreciates where she came from. We should, uh, you know, and, and in a little bit, we should go to the, you know, after party and we can have all these fun conversations. But, uh, you know, Bridget Bardot, I think, absolutely kills it in this. I, it's disappointing to find out that she's a, a Marine Le Pen supporter. And, uh, she called her the Joan of Arc of French. <laughs> like, what the f- 
Yeah, I wish she was, because then we wouldn't have to deal with her anymore. She'd be burned. <laughs> she even, she actually even went on trial, I think, for like using like anti-Muslim slurs. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, yeah, we at Boovie Night Extravaganza do approve of burning uh, Marie Le Pen at the stake. I feel like that's one of those things I tweet out at 3 a.m. and give Conan heartburn from the official Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> Which I should say, by the way, um, I'm sure it's too late. Well, no, it's not too late because this is, you know, Conan's going over on the uh, the West Coast. On uh, the West Coast, yeah. Yeah, so he's in Portland tonight, uh, Portland, Oregon, I think, uh, and he's he's playing with McCluskey. And, uh, you know, he, he sent us the, the two events. So it's 6 o'clock there. I guess you could probably, uh, if, if you haven't heard about it yet, you know, you could probably still yeah. hear about it. I was going to wait for you to do, but it feels like me mentioning Conan, I should shoehorn this in. Um yeah, so tonight he's yep. in Portland, and uh, tomorrow he's in Seattle. Uh, tonight he's playing with McCluskey. I know that. I don't know if the uh, other show he is, but yeah, you know. I can't remember off the top of my head because uh, I didn't write that down. But uh, uh, yeah, well, I just the message you didn't say, but <laughs> and I get to fill in for him. Yeah. No, but but yeah, we we should also mention. Uh, no, you know, you, she is. She's filling. No. <laughs> since since we're talking about Conan, might as well just throw this in here too. Um, you know, check out if you're if you're missing Conan right now. And you need your little Conan fix. Um, I recommend checking out the uh, um, Protonic Reversal episode 210 with Devo's uh, Jerry Casale, where they go over 10 years worth of uh, uh, song by song of uh, that Devo did. So, uh, we're, you know, good, uh, good archive one to dig up and, and listen to. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was cute when, uh, when he came on Chapo recently, uh, jerry gasale and then conan was like that was my guest and then they shouted out conan like they actually said like oh i got most of my information from conan neutron and the secret friends like here's two episodes like and conan was just so appreciative uh that you know that, that like he was really shouted out by uh by chris from uh chavo so i thought that was a that was a really funny <laughs> and kind of that's cute very cool man yeah, oh, yeah that's very... oh thank you that's good for conan <laughs> nice uh I also, I mean, speaking of music, I wanted to ask, uh, the, there are so many places where this like really uh, kind of sad, somber, uh, melancholic. So it's like uh, the, the music that plays whenever uh, they kind of have these, whatever, like profound conversations, uh, it's it's almost like the music is making fun of the conversation, uh, if you if you notice, right? Like, which kind of uh, I don't know who scored the music. I don't know if this was like super intentional because it yeah. does seem like the music is like overly overly dramatic, and, and, like, and it's also cut yeah. weird no, too, definitely, like, definitely like, like almost like it's sampled uh, at, at one point because like like it swells, calms down, and then cuts right back to the swell. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's it's like a proto um, you know hip hop DJ. Well, it, right. it's not just it's not just the it, it definitely is purposely ironic because it's not just the um, the actual uh, like music that's ironic. It's the actual shot where it's in between the scenes where um, he leaves and he puts her in, in, in his car originally. Right. Like he puts her in uh, Jeremy Krokovich or whatever his fucking last name. I'm not good with Polish names. I'm not even going to try with Polish names. Um, I'm anti-Polish, but, uh, <laughs> but like the, uh, that character, like they drive away in the car and they show the super ironic, dramatic zoom in scene again, where it's the, the, the giant Fritz Lang sculpture of, uh, of Odysseus turning his head. 
and they, they show and the one behind us actually, but um, uh, they, they show the head turn and it's as the music swells up, but it's during this uh, very like nonchalant, almost uh, you know, like, Oh, you know, I'll take the cab, you go in the car. And it's giving this, this weighty feeling of the gods, this uh, feeling of, I guess, uh, Greek uh, realistic superiority or something that they, they attribute to all like myths, like the, the mythos, I guess, of it. Like it's attributing that to these very low key scenes. And so I think that it definitely, I think you've hit on it hundred percent. It's like ironic purposely. It's like the, the movie kind of tries to constantly keep you at a distance from it, uh, which is just what I think like uh, takes us back to Bertolt Brecht also, which is the fact that like uh, you should not get too attached to the characters or the actual plot line and the, you know, it get, develops anything parasocial because uh, you have to con- constantly remember that you're wa- watching just like characters on a screen. Uh, and that's supposed to be a, a form of solidarity actually, right? Like, because like uh, it, it, is, is that solidarity with the uh, viewer where uh, you're kind of like also constantly aware of the fact that Bridget Bardot is, for example, a very, uh, you know, attractive, but also like a very popular actress and stuff like that. Um, and you're also, you know, made aware of the fact that Fritz Lang is like, you know, a, a, he's also like a cameo technically, although like he's a full time, uh, like he's a featured actor. Uh, but in a, in a kind of way, it's like you are uh, aware of all of these people. Uh, and so you are kind of also not taking them as seriously as you should. So you're constantly at a distance from the material, I think. And and it's like very intentional uh, in that sense. Yeah. And these are all kind of uh, corollaries of, of different emotions within the process of cinema. I mean, I, I kind of alluded to it in the intro, uh, which we can watch again during the uh during the after party i guess the little intro that i made for this episode which i've been doing lately where i just record myself and i end up hating my own voice because it takes a while to edit but uh like the one of the things is that you know uh godard felt like the american you know hollywood projects american values throughout the world and like it's a form of i guess it's almost like a form of cultural imperialism like you know wherever american cinema goes wherever hollywood goes and he makes fun of this in breathless too with the boogie and you know, you see the picture of Humphrey Bogart and everything. Um, the the process of that, I guess, um, you know, corrupting French values, corrupting European values, uh, remaking everything in the American image, and you see that throughout this whole entire movie, right? Like he's been completely corrupted by American values by the end of it, and it's uh, it's very much, I think, a statement of that, like just getting involved with this world of Hollywood, and whether it's you know shooting in Italy. Uh, but like through a, an American director, like wherever Americans put up the money, whatever Americans touch gets completely corroded. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I want to go to the, uh, in a minute, I want to go to the, uh, the, the one-liners, but I have, I'm going to try to pull up a, one more clip of Fritz Lang and uh, Fritz Lang and, and fucking uh, John Luke Godard going at it. <laughs> Hold on. I think we should, you know, uh, improvise right here while, while Forrest is doing that, but I don't have anything. Uh, <laughs> Could have just gone with the Larry David thing, I guess. Moi, ce que je peux pas changer la porte. Moi, j'ai besoin que tout existe, que les murs existent vraiment. Que la porte existe alors comme ça existe je dis je peux pas le changer mais écoute ce que je peux changer ce sont les gens ou alors si, si la porte me plaît pas ben je vais chercher un autre appartement dans un autre quartier 
Oui, je sais. Je... Alors que finalement, vous vous souvenez l'appartement à Rome dans, oui, dans lequel oui, on a tourné alors, le mépris. Alors, alors il faut il faut dire quelque chose. Quand j'ai vu cette scène-là, alors il faut dire la vérité. En ce cas, je comprends très bien que vous avez improvisé. Moi, je trouve cette scène extraordinaire. C'est un de plus. Non, mais pardon, alors maintenant je parle. Je crois que c'est un des de, 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 de meilleures scènes que j'ai jamais vues. Vous savez, je ne vous flatte pas. Vous savez que, que, que je crois que vous êtes un... Alors, vous savez ce que je pense de vous. Mais dans cette scène, j'ai compris pourquoi vous improvisez quelquefois. Mais vous avez une grande vision toujours. Pourquoi est-ce que c'est nécessaire de, 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 de voir tout vous savez, c'est une, 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 une vision, ce n'est pas nécessaire. C'est une chose que je ne comprends pas tout à fait. Bah, Peut-être que moi, j'aime mieux m'intéresser à l'ensemble d'une chose plutôt qu'à une chose particulière. Oui, vous savez, moi, je crois, mais alors... Euh, on pourrait discuter de ça pour des, pour des nuits et des nuits. Je crois quand on fait, comme moi, fait un film, je vois l'ensemble, je vois tout. Et j'essaie de, 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 de faire une scène pour que dans... Sans scène, après, oui. je commence ici avec une idée qui a la culmination ici. Oui. Et je crois quand on improvise, ça c'est très, très difficile. Oui, c'est mauvais, oui, oui. Ça, c est, c est, c est. Alors je ne dis pas que c'est meilleur que le vôtre, que, 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 que c'est meilleur que le vôtre. Mais peut-être... Euh, j'ai au départ, disons, peut-être un point de vue qui est plus le documentaire. Et au départ, vous avez un point de vue qui est plus la fiction. Et puis ensuite, ça revient. Il faut les deux ensemble. Oui, je crois que vous avez raison. Shut up, I'm talking. I love that. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's someone that knows that they have the power in that situation. Uh, completely owning it i mean you know people are if you ever dealt with like people that are extremely uh narcissistic and, and uh i guess fully self-aware artists it's kind of <laughs> intensive but he's right though both of them are i guess like in a kind of way uh completely warranted in saying the things that he's saying but i i also caught like fritz lang saying that like he he uses he puts plants an idea and he lets that culminate Uh, I thought that the, the whole uh, the movie actually begins with uh, the producer Jack Jack uh, Palance laughing at uh, you know the the skinny dipping scene where at, at the beginning uh, there's an actress who's seen skinny dipping and he's like just like immediately like gleefully laughing, and the movie does <laughs> and the movie does culminate with uh, Bridget Bardot doing the same thing. So in a kind of way, it's almost like foreshadowing the fact that like. Um, the the actress in this movie is going to do that in the end, and it's supposed to be a very sensational uh, sort of moment, right? Because she's a starlet in a kind of way. Um, but well, at the same it's, time, it's almost, the, it's almost like Greek mythology, where they set up like 
some kind of uh not achilles heel but like uh you know uh almost like a morality tale for whatever the character is and they're like this is their this is their weakness or this is the uh this is what's going to end up uh you know being the most corrosive during the story and for him it's uh, you know, his, his absolutely this just horny consumption of everything, right. everything like he's, uh, as, as Tony Soprano says, you know, he's, he's King Midas in reverse. Everything he touches turns to shit, or I guess maybe everything he touches turns to gold. So he, the, like, you know, either way in, in the same kind of sense, like it, it tarnishes everything it touches. So for him to kind of be looking at it and I, I absolutely love, uh, being able to do this finally, um, we so way back i don't remember i don't know if you were uh if, if you see this episode carly but like very early on we had doug lane on and we were talking mm. about uh local hero and uh andy's uh are you just gonna do the q-tip right on right, right on camera what was that oh christina was just doing the full q-tip right on camera yeah well done well done <laughs> 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 yeah, we we are oh. talking about a movie which is like breaking conventions in every frame. So you know, like you're just honoring the legacy of an artist who basically did that. So I guess you know, also she's she's cosmopolitics now. She can actually bring cute. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh. But well, it, yeah, you were saying uh, local heroes. Yeah. So local hero. Uh. The 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 thing that. And then we'll, we'll jump to letterbox one-liners right after this. But the, the thing that uh, Andy came up with in the end is that he decided they all turned into mermaids in the end of the movie. Like, I, so I said that they left it open to interpret it that way. I mean, and, and Doug Lane was like, no, that's not what happened. That doesn't make any sense. So, he's like, what the, kind uh, of drugs are you on? I think was the question. <laughs> so the after party name that I have for tonight is uh, Jander World finally gets a mermaid. And it's uh, it's it's the it's Jack Pounds like this where he's like, where he's gleefully laughing. <laughs> nice. But uh yep. letterbox one-liners. Let's uh let's hit this. Alrighty, so letterbox, a place where film lovers, film haters, film curious folks gather around to talk about films that they loved, that they hated, that turned them on, that made them laugh, made them cry, discuss film, review films, and uh make a little watch list. And without further ado. Here are the infamous letterbox one-liners for contact. Force, do the thing. <laughs> this is kind of a horror movie for me because one of my biggest fears is people annoying me when I'm trying to read in the bath. Three stars. <laughs> By the way, I'm, I'm, I, I wish you had worn like a black wig and tried to do the, the Bridget Bardot wig look. I don't have that wig. Yeah, well, not, maybe not, not, not that one. That wig is not a very good one. <laughs> They're not giving. They're not sending their best wigs. No. <laughs> Sometimes all you need in a movie is a girl, a gun, and a different interpretation of Homer's Odyssey that unknowingly changed the trajectory of both the protagonist's life. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but it it kind of literally is Chekhov's gun, or the opposite, whatever. Like the it's the red herring version of because uh, the gun does not go off in the end. You know what I no, mean? no, I was expecting like a, a, a double murder at the end. Uh -huh. he's, he's, he's breaking he's breaking conventions to the point where he literally breaks the Chekhov's gun uh, rule in the third act. I honestly believe now we're living in the good timeline and Jean-Luc Godard can pick up a camera and make banger after banger like this. What does it say that he's passed away now, though? Ugh. Are we now not the good timeline? Well, it had to happen. I mean, he made, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. To, he made it to 91. I don't know. 
And, and this was written in what 2017? Am I reading that right? Yeah. So he had put out two. He put out two more movies after this. I mean, this is the good time. Right. <laughs> Only two stars, <laughs> man. Jesus well, Christ. She, she feels contempt. That's the point of the. Uh... Don't forget, the gods have not created men. Men have created gods. Gonna say the, don't forget, gods have not created men. Men have created gods. <laughs> I don't do French accents. No, he does, he does a German accent, but. Whatever. <laughs> it's same thing. BRB, <laughs> mad at all women. Adam Friedland, the uh, the old come town, <laughs> the old come town guy. They just they just transitioned the uh, come town to now it's called the Adam Friedland show, right? Yeah. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah, I guess because Stav left. Okay. And he yeah, brought all the come. Yeah. yeah. Those are the Letterbox one liners for contempt. You can find all of us on Letterbox. <laughs> <laughs> And That's... he's doing all the films that no one wants to watch, but you find some some rare gems, to say the least. Hey, hey, I will say, One of the Dead, highly recommend. Mm. Right there, are you on Letterboxd? Yeah, I'm just not very active, but uh, I am. Yeah. And of course, Forrest is over there at Moon Knight Extravaganza, reviewing the films that we cover. Mostly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like I, I end up watching them over and over again rather than watching new films, which I should say, I'm sure we've all added this to the watch list. If we keep, I, I mean, I don't usually use that feature, but uh, we're, we're talking about Nope next week. Uh, mm. Jordan Peele's yep. new movie. So uh, you can't say yep to Nope. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, I think that's a movie that we've all really wanted to see uh, and haven't yet. Unless somebody hasn't cheated, um, so we're we're gonna be doing that, and that's uh, I'm excited for that because I really wanted to see that too. We were originally going to do uh, uh, the the other Jordan Peele, what is it, Us? The Us, other Jordan yeah. Peele movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were originally gonna do that, which is a movie that I like a lot, but then John Luc Godard died, so I, you know, we're we're doing this episode, but uh, we were gonna ready ourselves for that that way. But I, I guess we'll do that in the future when Conan gets back. Yeah, well, it gives me a chance to rewatch The Crow and, and appreciate Michael Wincott, uh, star of Nope and The Crow. So <laughs> there we go. All right. Well, uh, Andy, let's, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. Do the plugs. Uh, you're watching us right now on YouTube, so please do all the YouTube things. Like, comment, subscribe. Hit that bell if you haven't already. And the big uh, ask for you is to watch the video to the end. You get to hear a great Kona Neutron song. And... Uh, that helps us uh, have uh, other movie fans find our content. So, uh, you know, please, please do that. Um, please, you know, follow us on Twitter, Movie Night Extravaganza. You can find out what's going on. We have a Twitter uh, community. Um, if uh, you want to join, hit a, one of us up. Uh, I'm sure we can figure out how to do that. Uh, and we also but, tweet uh, it out every, we tweet it out once in a while. Maybe I'll, I'll start putting it in the show description. The link to to join that yeah but but you know it's it's uh, uh i post polls i try to post polls before the uh episode so to get an idea of like uh what people have seen the movie uh you know how many people have seen the movie uh so it's kind of interesting it was like a 50 50 split um although no one because i split yes into we oui, we oui, and yes in french so <laughs> um 
but but yeah, it's it's uh, we're we're building something there. It's really good. There's also a Discord. I don't know what we're doing with that. It, it exists. We gotta do more. You know what would be really smart is is for us to do like something like, on Discord, like yeah, watch parties. Yeah, we watch, watch the movie with films that we yeah. Yeah, that I've I've talked about doing that before. I've kind of I mean I've. I've done that with uh, with Ben. We did that a couple times uh, for stuff. We did it for Nomad Land. We did it for Judas and the Black Messiah. So I'd be down to do that in the future and try to figure out that. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe we could do it with our Patreon, which we have a Patreon. You can sign up. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, smooth transition there. Uh, but yeah, uh, sign up and and uh, like our Patreon. Uh, like our Patreon. Support our Patreon. There we go um conan's not here uh we, we plugged a few of his things but i did not plug his uh albums you can get uh the most recent secret friends album uh dangerous nomenclature and action chiefs just the solos uh right off Bandcamp. so uh make sure y'all do that uh christina who do you, you got any big plans this week with your uh with your uh, twitches well they banned gambling on twitch so i'm probably gonna out there the after party go stream again i'm trying to stream as much as i can before i don't look sad on friday <laughs> I have a side hustle, guys. I house it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy you didn't have to house it or, you know, dog sit uh, during this because I'm glad you, you came on for it and didn't have to. Because this would have weird if it's four dudes talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're talking yeah, about I'm Kentucky. a virgin bigot, you know? Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I didn't. Any problem with her voting for Marine Le Pen. I mean, you know, it's. Uh... <laughs> I guess she's a MAGA communist. Because uh, she did work with yeah, Godard, but also. Stupid. Yo, Bridget Bardot, Jackson Hinkle, 2024. <laughs> All right, I'm sold. <laughs> so, uh, JG, you do Parallax Views. Uh, who's coming up this week? Um, That's a good question. I, I'm trying to get some episodes out this week, but I'm still in the process of editing. So I have one with... Most- um, Andrew Basevich coming up uh, from the Quincy Institute. So we're going to be talking about his new book, Paths of Descent, about um, soldiers who descent from war. So that'll be really interesting. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I have a few movie episodes coming up for the Halloween season. So there's always that. Yes. We're we're doing zombies for, um, I don't think we've figured out guests yet, but we're doing zombie uh, month for. uh, I know Conan told me. Yeah. So you you should come on for one of those. I think we're are you doing, doing Shaun of the Dead? I don't yeah, think we're we doing Shaun of, the, Shaun of the Dead, but we're doing, I think we're doing Train to Busan. I think we're doing uh, Night of the Living Dead. We're doing, I don't remember what the other two are. Are, are you doing Zombieland also? The Woody Adelson one? I like that movie, but I don't think we're not, I don't think we have any comedy. Yeah, I don't we're, think that made the cut. Uh, I mean, there's a couple, like, like one of the dead uh, didn't make the cut either. But I also hadn't seen it until, oh my God, Forrest, you're going to love one of the dead. You need to watch I'm, one of I'm the sure, dead. I'm sure, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, they keep talking about the special period, uh, but anyways, uh, it's it's a Cuban zombie film. Yeah, I know. I saw your messages. About yeah. Oh, we actually we are doing Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think we have. Actually, we're doing both. We're doing both Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland. I guess. Uh, Zombieland. I love Zombieland. Just like yeah. So we're doing uh, Night of the Living Dead, Return of the Living Dead, uh, Dead Alive. Which I guess is different than Dead or Alive. <laughs> no, no, yeah, Dead. Not, it's just as batshit, but in very different ways. Uh, Shaun of the Dead, Zombieland, and Train to Busan. So you know, I, I don't know if you wa- if you've watched this movie called Warm Bodies by any chance. Yes. 
that's also like a zombie movie or is it a vampire movie i forgot uh, i think it's a zombie movie it right? is a zombie movie yeah supposed to be a zombie what love story or something uh yeah, like that yeah, yeah. yeah i remember when that came out i don't think i ended up seeing it but I, I didn't yeah yeah i'm just know. like big nope uh it looked like uh twilight but with zombies <laughs> it's it's i i would say it's a little grittier than twilight i suppose like twilight is kind of like a gold standard for complete just like frank emotion, miller's but... twilight is that yeah <laughs> All right, this, this, is all, this, is, this is definitely this is definitely after party stuff um absolutely but yeah, yeah i karthik we have not talked about uh, alien encounters or revolutionary tracks uh so what you got coming up on either of those so revolutionary tracks we we did like something close to what you could you could call a season i suppose and then like uh, we're probably gonna be back soon uh maybe next week if not this week itself um and uh, mainly just like yeah trying to get more uh, musical guests trying to get more uh, there's a lot of people who are trying to infuse revolutionary politics into hip hop uh, we got a lot of the usual suspects uh, who have made the rounds on left media uh, and i think like the next step for us is to like start reaching out to bigger artists and like get get into more uh, maybe even like mainstream I guess you have you guys should have Jerry Casal from Debo on. Hmm. Yeah, I've never heard anything by him, so I guess like I'll have to check you it out. Never heard any Debo songs? No, nah, I haven't. Whip it? No. So when the problem comes along, I've been I've been on a since we had uh which I've I've listened to Debo like, you know, since I was like younger, but um yeah. I've been listening to a lot of Debo lately. Uh Jocko Homo is honestly one of my fucking favorite songs. And the fact that he actually sang it, like, like, you know, mimed singing it on our actual stream was fucking so awesome. <laughs> when he was telling what, what, the story about Sun Ra. What we <laughs> definitely want to have, though, is uh, I, I would love to have him, uh, which would be uh, John Hinckley, the guy who shot Reagan. <laughs> oh, I, can, I, I, might be able to, I might be able to figure that out. Um, Why don't you get him on movie night or something? I think also. Yeah, well, I mean that would, that would so not uh, taxi drive no. Gab <laughs> Gab who uh got <laughs> Gab who the lambs. Gab who co hosts uh, Red Flag with us. Her like one of her best friends is actually doing his uh, booking, hmm. and mm-hmm. so we we haven't been able to figure out getting him on because I don't know we just haven't had any guests on in our like eleven. You should, episodes you should get him. You should get him on but, for a Ronald Reagan movie. <laughs> or something like that. He doesn't want to talk about that stuff anymore. He wants to know, just yeah. be positive. Oh, you know, if we do like a, a, a like a biography of like a like a artist because he's really into music. You got to find a Jodie Foster film. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, pretty much land. like Walk the Line or something. You know, you guys are awful. Whatever. No, but um, but but on a, but a serious note, I definitely think that it'd be cool to like have John Hinckley be the sort of like, I don't know, leftist subculture uh, hero of sorts, like as his on, on his like oh, comeback. Hinckley. <laughs> yeah. He's like literally, yeah, he's uh, he's literally like kind of uh, been pushed forward by uh, what's his name? Like Max of uh, Eve 6-2. So maybe like there's a potential there to like create some sort of uh, subculture out of it. But definitely, yeah, John Hinckley, Immortal Technique. These are all like people that I'm definitely going for and also like with that like technique on i would love to hear that yeah yeah definitely Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's hard because like you know uh, it it, it's more like you had to go through the agents like now you're not talking about like directly reaching uh the guest 
which is like, you know, thankfully when you're reaching out to leftists and stuff, like it's usually like, you know, you directly reach out to the person, you can pretty much DM somebody. Uh, but like immortal technique is so huge that uh, you'd have to probably go through the label or something like that. So, yeah. But he does follow left flank bets though, for what it's worth. So, you might be able to DM. <laughs> he also uh, he also bullied Lin Manuel Miranda and threw him into a dumpster, and I'm assuming that's right, why yeah. Lin Manuel Miranda is the way he is. Uh, no, he, I mean he, he probably Chris Hayes, it. Mortal Technique Chris Hayes and Lin Manuel Miranda went to the same high school or middle school or whatever in the Bronx. <laughs> um, I remember he probably deserved it for whatever. I, I remember before Hamilton came for. out, uh, uh, Chris Hayes brought on Lin Manuel Miranda as a as a guest to perform one of his songs. For, for yeah, they went, to, uh, they went to middle school or whatever together. Um, that's but wild. <laughs> we should, we should, uh, you know, we should go to final thoughts. Uh, it's uh, it's time to jump to the after party in a second. Uh, Karthik, let's hear some final thoughts, and we'll keep having you know the discourse and the uh, and the after party. So if there's anything you don't think of, it's it's all right. All right, great. Uh, so I think uh, like contempt. Well, I so from when I watched it the first time. I've always like known this to be a standing example of uh, Brecht's alienation effect, which is basically that like there is there is a style of theater that uh, Bertolt Brecht uh, introduced, where the whole point is to have the audience constantly distanced from the actions and uh, never feeling that emotional investment, so that like they uh, at once get the, receive the effect of the, the the story and the narrative, but at the same time they're able to retain the critical thinking uh, the, the entire time. And also this becomes an opportunity to uh, introduce a lot of like political concepts, like class differences and like, you know, uh, philosophical worldview clashes, conflicts and stuff like that, which you can think about more clearly. And I think like contempt basically lays it out in the fundamental conflict, which is, uh, which kind of like he ironizes beautifully uh, where uh, he talks about like uh, Ulysses, like Paul, the character, Although he's supposed to be the stand-in for Ulysses, uh, he kind of like says, Ulysses is not a modern-day neurotic. He's a simple, extraordinary uh, man uh, who lived a simple life. Uh, but at the same time, you're making a movie where you are kind of like introducing Ulysses into a modern-day neurotic context. So in a kind of way, uh, contempt completely, I think the contempt that you know it refers to, the movie refers to, is a contempt for... Uh, the kind of corruption and uh, as you point out Forrest that uh, Hollywood brings into the picture and like return to a form of like expression where film as art uh, every scene as a as, as a, akin to a painting um, every shot as an akin to a painting and like every uh, bit of the narrative uh, being like something that you can experiment with like leave the viewer with something larger than just like the uh, impact of spectacle. So, in fact, like contempt as contempt for spectacle, also where it doesn't want to just like want the film to just be something that you watch and enjoy and you know eat popcorn with. It wants you to uh, sit with it and like you know um, evaluate every moment that comes on screen. Um, and I think like it also kind of like beautifully introduces Bridget Bardo uh, as a as a kind of stand-in for Frenchness itself. Uh, in an interesting way, and uh, the director, of course, like or the, the the writer that she's uh, with, uh, her partner Paul is uh, is a kind of like a uh, the the Frenchman who's letting Frenchness slip uh, into the hands of like an American form of corruption, and like he's kind of supposed to pull it back, and that's where that's why like he's taking it on this uh, existential course. Uh, that's what I 
Uh, yeah, or, or no, she's she's French cinema and French culture as uh you know as uh Godard would, would want it, and he's French culture as he sees it influenced by American culture in the sense of uh through Hollywood, like you know, writing about that extensively as he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like uh basically uh it, it's just like it's been, as I pointed out, like the dreamers also kind of like touches on this a little bit. It's constantly like this friction between uh, America being like also uh, a place that like supposedly values life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and free speech and all of that. And France is supposed to have lent the Bill of Rights to the United States and everything. And then like, uh, you know, uh, Jefferson is supposed to have been inspired by the French Revolution and like having uh, even come up with the First Amendment and all of that. Uh, so there's always like this tension between who's doing it better. Uh, and I feel like uh, the, the going on this existential existentialist track, uh, it seems to be it, it, like seems to be what uh, the French advocate, where, whereas like uh, uh, the American kind of brings into a more like hedonistic, passionate uh, kind of view viewpoint, which uh, the French man is like. Kinda... Well, the, French, the French Revolution happened after uh, after the American Revolution. But the thing is that people the Bill of Rights. Later... But people that would later uh, go and like uh, you know lead the beginning, the first phase of the French Revolution, like Lafayette and stuff, learned about revolution as uh, as a concept by uh, joining the American Revolution. Like Lafayette was uh, Washington's adopted son throughout the American Revolution, and a lot of the nobility and military officers that you know would later go on to lead the French Revolution were uh, originally American revolutionaries. But yeah, I mean. They lent. Uh, but isn't the isn't the Bill of Rights uh, supposedly inspired by the rights of man? Like because I think like Jeffersonian, especially like the Bill of Rights is supposed to have. Uh, maybe it's not directly from the French Revolution. Maybe it's from like Rousseau or something like that. But there's definitely an origin story of the Bill of Rights as connected to the rights of man, which uh, came I think it, I think it goes kind of the other way because uh, it's 1789 when Declaration of the Rights of Man come came out, and uh, a big part of that is also that. Um, that uh, you know the the like just a lot of the same figures, I guess, in in both cases, um, were shared. Which there's there's like a story where, um, oh, what the fuck is wait hold on there's there's a story where uh, yeah Thomas Paine. I don't know why I couldn't think of the name Thomas Paine. I literally have Harvey Case book about it. But uh, Thomas Paine goes and actually moved after the American Revolution, moved to France, mm-hmm. and actually during the uh, during the terror got imprisoned in a in a um in a french prison like they 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 allowed him to be one of the delegates that actually were like you know was, was serving uh, during the like he joined the jacobin club and everything and they allowed him to uh but like he was he was a Girondin, like he was on that side of the jacobin club so they actually purged him during the the terror but they didn't kill him because he's obviously was like an internationally renowned figure but he was slated for fucking getting guillotined and they ended up at the last minute. Robespierre got guillotined before he could give the order to guillotine Thomas Paine, and Thomas Paine was let out of prison right at like a year after the Thermidorian reaction. But like, the, it's a lot of the same uh, thinkers and like figures um, are shared by both things. The French were inspired by the American Revolution uh, to the point where, I mean, you know, later on in his life, because the second French Revolution kind of right, right before uh, Louis Napoleon took over, like that whole period. Um, the you know uh they had just let uh lafayette out and he goes around in america on like a, a goodwill tour or whatever as he's trying to you know keep the the revolution of 1830 or whatever going just a couple <laughs> a few decades later 
And so there's like, there's a, a lot of turnaround between the two. Um, and, you know, the, the American Revolution was essentially the, the revolution that the nobles, like the nobility who actually led the first part, you know, like the tennis code or oath and everything wanted to wage that kind of uh, revolution. And then the fact that uh, the Jacobins ended up taking over was that, you know, they weren't the ones that were actually in control of everything because they're not the, the, the biggest numbers, I guess. Right. Like they're not the, the ones that are actually like, hey, we're actually the ones in the streets. Maybe we don't have to let nobles just kind of chill. <laughs> right. Yeah, but uh, ju just to point out the tension between the two, because like, I mean, like that's that's clarifying. Um, I, I did like, you know, uh, of course, the French Revolution, like uh, postdates the American Revolution. But I also thought that the rights of man was from before. Uh, but I think like uh, definitely uh, there is a tension in, in terms of which direction you take the concept of liberty. And uh, the French insinuation is that America tends to take the concept of liberty into a pursuit of pleasure. Uh, and or, or like uh, accumulation of wealth uh, or like, you know, uh, acquisition of property and stuff like that. But French uh, idea of like liberty is supposed to be about like a more transcendental view and whatnot. Uh, and also has more of a place for uh, class solidarity because it's rooted in like uh, the, the, the guillotining um, and everything. As you mm -hmm. pointed out, like the American Revolution um, has more like of, a, of an upper uh, a bourgeoisie kind of led uh, revolution which you could argue the french revolution also like has shades of it but i think like the french probably think that they are uh more uh you know figures of solidarity than uh maybe even the american founding fathers or whatever uh well the, but, the criticism i yeah. think that marx had of uh, a figure like robespierre right is that he was a bourgeois like he's, he's mm -hmm. still kind of a bourgeois lawyer and the the factional fights that occurred between the jacobin club like between you know uh the the, the mountain and the durand and like the two uh big you know factional parties that ended up massacring each other during the the terror um is that you know it wasn't based in class solidarity exactly of course then marx ended up moving to paris during the revolution of uh like 1848 like that whole time period he ended up going when they put up the barricades and everything and was cheering that part on and actually in 1832 he was he was there trying to like be like hey maybe we should do more revolution guys and then uh, you know kind of things fell apart both times right are but we yeah. at the party yeah we no, should I this this it feels like <laughs> but oh so so what i wanted it to became say a conversation this, yeah yeah, yeah what uh, I, I think we need about, to have other people's mental thoughts first well so what i wanted to say about this uh this point is that you know in a similar way hollywood comes first than parisian cinema but um jg i want to hear uh your, your your final thoughts yeah i guess my final thoughts i want to talk more about um or just final thoughts on on godard because uh i do think there's a lot of debate about godard um one of my, I think they're a mutual friend of yours, uh, Forrest, but uh, the resident film critic at uh, Jacobin, um, Eileen Jones, uh, was talking about how she didn't really like Godard. And there's always been this criticism of Godard as being, you know, either pretentious or pseudo-intellectual. Uh, but I always like to reference um, Pierre Bourdieu, the great French sociologist who was really close to Godard. Um, and Godard sent him a bunch of written materials that show up in um, the, the Bourdieu documentary, Sociology as a Mixed Martial Art. And what Bourdieu says is he's looking over this written material and he's like, I don't understand all of this, but the man's a genius. And uh, I do think that Godard, whether you always get him, and there's been films of his I've seen where I don't understand what he's getting at, I think he is uh, a filmmaker that is very important and, and worthwhile 
I don't think the people who say, oh, he's pretentious and just kind of useless, I disagree with that view. I especially like the fact that Godard was someone that really wanted to experiment with the medium itself, so much so that he begins to just not even want to do narrative film. He almost feels like stifled by that. He wants to get out of that narrative, you know, beginning, middle, end structure. And I, I think he's a very interesting filmmaker just philosophically um, because I think he really wants to be liberated from different forms. He doesn't want to be stifled. And he sort of wants to push the boundaries and often work outside of them. And that's the thing I appreciate most about Godard. And that'll be what I miss most yeah, and about I have, him. And I have, I, have two, I have two clips to talk about with this during the after party. So we'll definitely get into those uh, thoughts about it more. I have uh, one I want to talk about his uh, break with Truffaut. And the other one I want to, um, it's him talking about film critics and how that informed his uh, you know, at his time as a film critic, but rushing through these, uh, you know, the final thoughts, Christina, let's hear some final thoughts. Uh, 10 out of 10 croissant. <laughs> <Me. laughs> um, all right, Andy. Uh, you know, one of the things I love is, is, uh, Jack Palance always seemed like a sculpture to me. Like, like there's just something uncanny about his face. Uh, and, and to see him in this, uh, juxtaposed with uh, the you know the the uh, Roman sculptures, uh, which uh, great to see the actual paint on them. I, I know like you know we as uh, art connoisseurs in America tend to think of it just like the white uh, statues, but they weren't just white statues because we're seeing a reconstructed image of those, like like an actual like mold of of them. Uh, out of plaster which is why they're white but the original marble was painted on so um nice to actually see that uh you know in in film uh you know because because you certainly don't see that in art history class uh a lot of times because um they don't have the rights to take those pictures but um so so it is kind of interesting to kind of uh you know see uh this man who whose face i always you know there is something very stony about uh, Jack Palance's face juxtaposed with uh, these, these beautiful sculptures uh, and to see the actual, so the, the remains of the paint on it, you know, we're, we're not getting the full effect because they, they were painted from head to toe. Um, uh, these garish colors, but you know, again, we don't necessarily get to appreciate that. And uh, so, so uh, if you're ever watching this and you're wondering like why these are, are painted on, that actually is what the Romans did. All right. Well, uh, we're going to go to the after party in about, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Probably I got to do a couple things first, but I just want to say as my final thoughts, remember, you know, uh, gods have not created man. Man has created gods. Mm -hmm.